Okay, I'll I'll do the the bass. You do the. Oh, thank you for telling me right now when we're recording what I was going to do because all you said during the countdown was I'll do the bass and you'll do the uh, you'll do the uh, and then the countdown stopped you and then you said time. I'm going to be doing the pops. I'm going to be doing the pops. <laughs> you wanted more time to practice. That's what you wanted. Two, yes. three, four. <laughs> Easy to beat. Easy to beat. See, that's all I know from the Seinfeld theme is the part that was cut out of all but one episode, one episode. of Seinfeld. Easy to me. You want to do the, the thing? Welcome to Your Inner Child is an Idiot. My name is Damon. We're going to look back at the... Uh, wait, I did that all out of order. <laughs> you were going to say, my name is Damon, then do a whole thing and to, before <laughs> whole you introduce thing, me. And then wait to introduce you like I was Tom Schneider and you were just like Carl Sagan coming on to talk and now again here's with the my topical co-host. references. And after I've talked for five minutes straight, here's my... <laughs> Equinemical, that's not a word, my equal co-host, TJ. <laughs> and then I have you say hi, and then I start talking hi. again immediately. <laughs> you want to do all that again? <laughs> no, I feel like this is a great intro. Keep it. I'll do it just in case you want it. Okay. Welcome to Your Inner Child is an Idiot. This is the podcast where we look back on things from our childhood and wonder if they were any good to begin with. My name is Damon. I'm DJ. Hello. Hello, DJ. Today we're talking about Seinfeld, a situational a comedy. Now, it's a situational comedy about okay. comedian, comedian Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. the purple Tinky Winky, I think his name is, the red one, and Norm was there. Norm. Yeah. He always so, came to the bar and we screamed his name. What I like about Seinfeld, the program, is that there's yeah. not a out and out racist in in the <laughs> fuck right into the it cast <laughs> we have to say it. so we're going to talk about that but this is a show this was very important to you right because i like acknowledged well don't start I've with this i like what i like about seinfeld like a sarcastic what i like about seinfeld there's not an out and out racist and then go into damon this show's very important to you <laughs> don't do that transition at least give a topic in the middle like come on now, Damon, this show is famous for being written by David Duke. This show is very important to you, right? Come on. When did you stop beating your wife? Sorry. Marital abuse is not funny. Michael Richards famously post Seinfeld used the N-word on stage and then kind of he apologized for it, right? But it was like. I don't remember the fallout kind of feeling resolved to me. I remember it being like, that's, you <laughs> uh, went, anybody that goes that quick to the N word, I'm always like, eh, and he's like using the I'm a provocateur kind of excuse, which is always like, mm, okay. Are you a provocateur, Michael Richards? First off, like you're not Andy Kaufman. You're that's, not a provocateur. That's not your reputation. You came indoors weird. That was your <laughs> reputation. <laughs> he was a provocateur to entryways. To thresholds. That's the one where he was breaking the mold. Jams be damned, he always said. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm on the... I mean, I hate to start with this. I love to start with it. 
because I'm also a provocateur, but I hate starting <laughs> with this. But I want to yeah. say, like, I am on the same page as you where it felt very... So he he said the N-word during a show where he felt like he was being, like, heckled or, like, some audience members were talking over him, and those audience members yeah. were black. And so he immediately went to racially charged talk, referencing lynchings and using the N-word, and the audience very quickly and rightfully turned against him. And I remember he immediately started the apology tour and it's almost like he invented the apology tour and the apology tour became like sort of the PR like staple a, a for laugh a crisis. Line. Like people yeah. sort of were like, it almost immediately became trite by him starting it. Like it felt like yeah. he started it. Like he went on, I think, Al Sharpton had a radio show and he went on Al Sharpton's radio show. And I feel like Jesse Jackson was there as well. It almost felt a little too on the nose. And he <laughs> was, he was, he apologized to them directly because as duly appointed representatives of the entire black community of America, that's who you would go to. And then I remember, and this was also awkward. I think Jerry Seinfeld, this is the part where I remember watching it live. Jerry Seinfeld was going to be on David Letterman's show mm. before the controversy broke. Like it was, they were already right. scheduled and unrelated, unrelated. And when the controversy became news, Jerry Seinfeld used his interview on David Letterman to like, have Michael Richards on via via video. And what was awkward about it, and just sort of like sort of almost undercut everything Michael Richards had already done, is that Michael Richards apologized to, and I'm using a quote here, to Afro-Americans, which is a term that I feel like was used in a seven-year window in the late 60s to early 70s. It was a very dated term that it was almost like, wait, do you know any black people in real life? <laughs> and I remember the audience starts laughing when he used the term Afro-Americans, and Jerry Seinfeld, in his newly minted millionaire status, goes, like sort of says, be quiet, everyone. Michael Richards is apologizing. And I was like, oh, this whole thing is going awry in real time in front of yeah. mine own eyes. It was supremely uncomfortable and just like completely just clumsy, for lack of yeah. a better term. Like it was just completely unwieldy. Like Michael Richards could not sort of regain control of the narrative and rightfully so probably and i think the best attempt at rewriting the script was he appeared on curb your enthusiasm later where they were restaging a seinfeld reunion and he sort of made light of like he kept running into black situation. people and he was like oh my god please i'm so sorry he would keep <laughs> apologizing to them but i mean it tinges seinfeld in general but i mean yeah. the awkward thing about is how little it really affects Seinfeld because Seinfeld is so Seinfeld so white. There are right, not a right. lot of people of yeah. color on Seinfeld. So it doesn't touch on race all that much. So in an awkward way, it sort of keeps Seinfeld in this bubble. But then when you realize it's in that bubble, it also makes it awkward. So it's almost a double bubble, as I would call it. <laughs> Well, and, you know, <laughs> Seinfeld takes place in, in New York City, which is a famously, you know, isolated 
Caucasian community. So New it York makes City sense. is in Norway, as we all know. It's one of the few places in Norway that is still controlled by the United States. And Not so known it's a largely diversity. white community. Yeah. yeah. Much like Friends also took place in, in New York City and was in an all-white city. While we're going ahead and airing our dirty laundry before talking about the show proper, we got to talk about Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. So the Michael Richards apology kind of everyone be quiet thing is kind of indicative of how like he's like it seems like his actual personality might be popping out post Seinfeld where like he may just be kind of a little bit you know he's been supremely successful as a comedian and then extremely mega successful as a sitcom star for a very long time now and so you can kind of see where it's like maybe he likes the smell of his own farts a little bit which (laughs) which Mm -hmm. you know which is a diagnosis that doctors can give you it's not funny but more importantly he began dating his wife when she was a minor right no 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 no, no. your honor your honor gonna stop you right there he started dating his current wife when she was married oh that's what it is allegedly but at the end of seinfeld's run he did start dating a woman who was still 17 i believe that's right okay Okay. An important caveat, which I think his defense at the time was the age of consent in New York City is, I think at yeah. the time was 16. So it was like, what? And I was like, you I don't know. If you're ever bringing up law, like the specificity of laws in a conversation, you're yeah. already losing is my feeling. Personally, I'm looking at my lawyer and he's giving <laughs> me a silent nod. That's my feeling on that, is that it's kind of like politics. If you're explaining, you're already losing in this conversation. If you're having to explain to me that they're really mature for their age, I feel like you're already losing. She's an old soul. Okay. (laughs) It's the legal versus ethical line that is always a little dicey to be discussing. Back to the show itself. (laughs) Damon, you love it after we've discussed <laughs> I know. a half of the main cast. You, I just feel you like you were saying you loved it, or what was that? Listen, I love this show too. I'm going to own it with you because I think it's disingenuous. Like, it, it feels a little dishonest to like start with the fun stuff and then be like, also, there's this bullshit to deal with. So, like, sure. as much as it's a bummer to like start with this bullshit, I do feel like it does put a filter over the whole rest of it when you're watching it so why not when we're discussing it too i feel like you can you can sort of yada yada it away oh okay over there that's a seinfeld reference and i don't think that's doing justice to the controversies either so julia louis dreyfus unscathed as far as we know jason alexander unscathed queen among people yeah jason alexander also wondrous an absolute delightful cavalcade of side characters that I'm not going to start naming because there's like hundreds of them. But some of them right here, perhaps. Many or most of you listening to this. Oh, yeah, that's the poster. And don't forget, I also have this Lego set here. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Is that the apartment? Which after the Kramer and Jerry talk, I feel a little bit more awkward about showing off, but I will just go ahead and do it anyway. Is it mobile? Can you bring it to the camera? You know what? I can. That's the great thing about Legos is that they can be moved. Okay. You don't have to cement them into the It's going to all fall apart, isn't it? Oh, my God. Can you imagine? That's delightful. Isn't that that fun? I'm doing, I believe this is, this is Julia Louis-Dreyfus pulling off. There was a two-episode arc where George has a toupee and Julia is done with it at some point. And she just rips it off his head and says, 
I don't like this thing. And here's what I'm doing with it. And she throws it out the window. And it's one of my favorite moments <laughs> in Seinfeld. That's delightful. It also, not to interrupt, but it also comes with a little stand-up stage. Uh-huh. Isn't that cute? Look at that. For with the, a little brick uh, wall. That's Night nice. of the Improv. That's cute. There's cobwebs on it, though. Ooh. And your partner, Tyler, is such a huge Seinfeld fan. that, And this artwork here, the album that he created, lots of tiny Seinfeld references. I can't show you. <laughs> Don't ask what they are, but they're in there. There are 65, and I will give $2,500 to anyone who can find all 65 of them. <laughs> For those, I would say many or most of you that are listening to this are like, yeah, Seinfeld. It was enormous, and you either like it I've hate heard or never of seen it. it. But there's going to be some people that are young that don't maybe don't understand the enormity of this sitcom. Like, it was, it was huge. It was probably what, like... Number two to Friends, or maybe number three to Friends and and Frasier. I mean, as far as like, what do you mean by by number two? Like, as far as ratings wise, no, it was number one. I mean, it was, was it? it was the biggest yeah. show of the nineties. I feel like, yeah. and I feel like Friends has sort of risen above it in terms of like I think Gen Z has like latched on to Friends, right? Yeah, maybe that's what I'm getting in a way that I mixed up. I certainly, I certainly don't get mad at. I don't want anyone to get the idea that I resent Gen Z because they love Friends over Seinfeld. It's I just, just think I they're mean, frauds. Is all I'm saying is that I think that they're disingenuous frauds and should be hoisted by their own petards. Well, one of them is like I, the I found I found one of those shows funny and the other not at all funny. So that was my quandary. It was like, which one of those do I watch? The one that I have never laughed at a single time <laughs> or the one that generally makes me laugh. So that's why I stuck with Seinfeld generally. <laughs> oh, it's always a tough one. Oh, they've got a great set. I can't deny that they've got a fun apartment. They got a picture frame around the, you know, the the looking glass or whatever. Don't say looking I, glass. I hate to say it, but we should cover Friends. No, I, we should. And I will say, I don't hate Friends. I laugh at Friends, but I never like connected at a gut level with Friends like yeah. I do with Seinfeld. And you don't have to pick one. Like if you like them both, that's great. But I think it's uh, part of the thing is they, something They both this, have Lego sets. Is all that's I'm true. You can get both. Something this big can often feel like if you're not connecting with it, that it's like foisted upon you, even if you're not watching it at all. Like sure. it's like if when Friends was on, even when it was huge, it's like if you didn't want to watch it, just don't watch it. But if other people are constantly talking about it, you feel like stop pushing this on me. <laughs> and I understand that people might feel the exact same way about Seinfeld. They're like, look, I don't get it. Stop talking about it. It's huge. But I actually did connect with it. So I don't mind. I didn't get nearly as into it as I am now, except for when we were roommates and you would watch it all the time. So I had definitely not seen, I had definitely not seen all the episodes like I can say that I have now. So did you not watch it when it was on TV live? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Casual. And I Casual liked it. Fan. I liked it, but I, I didn't like kind of appreciate it as much as when we would sit down and watch what usually didn't start with first season though, right? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's kind of got a Parks and Rec disease where it's like, you can probably skip a few of these first seasons. I feel like season three is when it really hits its stride. But really, honestly, season four is when Julia Louis-Dreyfus, like they finally realize what to do with her. And that's yeah. the moment where I feel like the show sort of coalesces into what Seinfeld will be for the rest of its run. 
I watched the show on reruns, but while it was still currently airing, so right. apparently after it hit its 100 episode mark and it was sold into syndication, so to watch it weekdays while it was still airing on Must See TV Thursdays. And so I remember being very excited once the finale came on, which mm. was a thing and also a disaster in terms of <laughs> pop culture. It's a show, the finale, I hope we watch it in, in our slew of oh, yeah. episodes we'll watch. It's one of those things where I understand what you were doing, Seinfeld. Yeah. But what you weren't doing was being funny. Right. Yeah. Like, I understand the artistic merit you were trying to achieve, but it doesn't doesn't achieve that comedy part of the situational comedy. It was like a, you know, sitcoms used to do clip shows. It was like a <laughs> clip show that wasn't a clip show. Like, it was like, mm -hmm. they got like almost every single side character. The, they like, brought a lot of side characters back yeah. to have them, you know, crammed in into one episode. Yeah, crammed into an overlong episode. That didn't take place in New York for reasons we can get into when we actually watch the episodes. Yeah, it's a very odd choice. But I think what was interesting about Seinfeld, and I think what can sort of, I think sometimes this happens a lot in pop culture when something is so influential that all the things that come after it start to overshadow it. And when, yeah. you know, younger generations go back to it, it's like, so what's this again? One of the things whenever I tell someone that I'm a big Seinfeld fan, a lot of times I'm met with, oh yeah, I'm a big Always Sunny in Philadelphia fan. I'm like, okay. I mean, I don't think it's a competition. Like there's always like a weird, right. like I'm much more of an Always Sunny in Philadelphia fan. I'm like, good, I'm happy for you. <laughs> but I feel like the difference between those shows is that Always Sunny is very much, they are supposed to be terrible people. And I think Seinfeld has a little bit of this, but they are terrible people in a very unrealistic way, which is funny. But Seinfeld is always like on this cusp of, but don't you kind of relate to these terrible people a little bit? And it always almost implicates you a little bit. It's like, no, yeah, I do kind of see Jerry or George's point in what they're saying. Curb Your Enthusiasm is very much in this same vein of like, yeah, Larry is correct, but he's also still an asshole. <laughs> do you get a lot of comparison of Always Sunny and Seinfeld? I've never heard of that before. Not, it's not, happened like, to me twice. I'm not calling so, you a liar. <laughs> it's happened to me twice, so that means it is... Universal. <laughs> very much universal across the board. Everyone who likes Always Sunny is in Philadelphia hates Seinfeld and will bring it up to me personally <laughs> and chalk it up to my lack of comedy chops. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it a, a handful of times and it's always stuck with me. I'm like, why are these two shows being compared? Because I do think there's not, not a through line between them, but I feel like they are two very, very different shows. I feel like Seinfeld, maybe because I stuck with Seinfeld early on and watched it through that I feel like the idea that the central characters were terrible people was always sort of like it crept in near the end, but it wasn't necessarily there at the beginning. It's something that sort of developed throughout the show is that they're actually kind of terrible people. Whereas I think in the earlier seasons, they're a little bit more relatable and near the end, they sort yeah. of become caricatures of themselves. Right. Yeah. I guess I, other than being, you know, a sitcom and having, generally detestable <laughs> heroes. I've never really connected the two shows before, but I guess that does make sense. Obviously, like anything 
situational comedy after Seinfeld is influenced by Seinfeld, you know, and, and not that it, it's not either influenced alone, or compared to but, Seinfeld. Yeah. 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 It was just like such a huge show and friends too, you know, like it's like any sort of sitcom is going to have like, you know, stand upon the shoulders of what came before it. But especially like shows that were so huge like that for me, like Seinfeld is an example is I generally don't like the sort of old school multi-camera sitcom thing. And this era was sort of like the beginning era of like when I was like, I don't think I like this anymore because it's very much like set up, punchline, laugh, set up, punchline, laugh. And what I think is so interesting about Seinfeld is it's not set up, punchline, laugh, set up, punchline, laugh. It's like it's almost all character beats. And I think that's just I can see where Always Sunny taps into that as well as other shows where it's just like. It's, I mean, yeah, of course there's, there's typical sitcom stuff in there too. Like, you know, when Kramer enters the door, but I never really found that stuff particularly funny. That's why Kramer, while he has many, many funny moments is not one of my favorite characters on the show because no, yeah, like, I'm the same. he's like the wacky neighbor, which is a very common sitcom, sitcom trope. And I do think at times they turn it on its head, but like the things that are funny to me is where you just see, you know, how mad Elaine is getting about something. And you know <laughs> all the things that came before. And the other thing that's crazy about Seinfeld that I can't wait to sort of dive into when we watch these episodes is like, it's one of the most difficult shows of this ilk of like a sitcom, a 30-minute 30, 30 sitcom, where if you miss more than five minutes of the beginning of the show, you cannot catch back up. Or at least you can, but you, you don't know what's going on because they like set up so many things and it's all just falling in domino fashion by the end. And if you come in five to 10 minutes late, which almost any other sitcom, certainly of that era, you could easily and be like, <laughs> yeah, okay, I get it. Joey's on doing something silly, you know, or whatever, like <laughs> I keep Joey's shitting on hitting friends. On I, I, with I, his Italian accent. I, I really don't mean to, to shit on friends. I'm just like sort of trying to compare it to the things of its air. And that's the only thing I can think of right now. Becker, like, you could attack Becker, Becker, Caroline in the city, perhaps. <sighs> no. missed, missed a lot of <laughs> that. Victoria's run. closet. Is that no oh. Victoria's secret. Veronica's closet is what I meant to say. Herman's the nanny. Head. Oh, Herman's head was earlier 90s, but I will still accept it because I love <laughs> referencing Herman's head. Plus, didn't Seinfeld start in like 89? When did this show start? You know, it certainly did. It did start in 89. I think you're right. The irony to me, I think in line with what you were saying is that even though it is a multi-camera sitcom and it has the studio audience, it's almost like sort of the death knell for it. It's almost like this isn't mm. what comedy will be going forward. And I feel like the shows it inspired, a lot of the mockumentary stuff, a lot of the shows like The American Office, Modern Family, 30 Rock, where they were a little bit bolder in making their lead characters a little bit less everyman. I think that's what mm -hmm. it really introduced was the idea of like, you don't have to have some sort of bland character at the center of this. You can have someone who is genuinely, if not unlikable, very, very specific. Like I think of Liz Lemon as someone who I relate to in some ways and in other ways. I'm like, this woman is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Where she, you know, she loves following rules and she loves, you know, trashy food. But, you know, she also has a very specific view of, you know, the world. And they introduce that very well in 30 Rock. And I think in 
Seinfeld, even though it's following the old sitcom tropes, even down to like tropes like the nosy neighbor, it is almost like taking them to the dumpster and just saying, we're going to tear these apart and break them down to their most basic parts and show you how they can never really be done again. Because we're going to do them so well and we're going to just like end the ability for you to keep doing a multi-camera sitcom. And I feel like after this, it was hard to watch things like Two and a Half Men and Mike and Molly and be like, ah, yes, the perfect sitcom is back. Like you wanted to go to the singular camera comedies like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, 30 Rock, Parks and Rec, things like that going forward. I think the difference here too is like Seinfeld is that rare confluence of somebody like kind of playing with convention, but also getting like astronomical mainstream success. Like The Simpsons is a good example of that. And like 30 Rock is an example of something that, you know, even though it was on the air for a while, like it was like always almost canceled. Like true. Towards yeah, also th- true. So like, and I'm not saying that's bad. I love 30 rock. I'm, it's not a judgment call. It's just like that sort of confluence of so much broad appeal. So they were able to kind of like play the spectrum, like the stuff, like again, not, not to say you're an idiot. If you think Kramer busting into the door. So I think that's funny too. Like it's, you know, stupid stuff can be funny, but it's like, they've got that element and then they've got all the, like the crazy element. And I think it's, it's just a lovely chemistry of just all these different things coming together. I'm excited to like revisit it. Cause I haven't seen, I've seen like little clips, but I have not seen like full episodes in a while. You've just reminded me that we actually haven't watched the show yet. We're we talking like we've watched episode. six episodes and we're here to review it. We've just been doing an introduction to Seinfeld and this we're might have to be so a, fucking excited about talking about it. This might have to be a two-parter. We'll see. We're going to grab a smattering of episodes. We'll watch the first and last and then, I don't know, we, we may watch a lot of these just because I know there's a lot it's of highlights. It's fun to watch Seinfeld. And Not to give a spoiler for what our review will be. <laughs> Yeah. I want to get some bad episodes. I will look into, and I'll also talk to our resident Seinfeld and Sondheim expert, Adam, to get his take on episodes we'd like to do. I'd like to get some early episodes because I think my theory of Seinfeld is when Elaine comes into her own is when the show sort of coalesces into what it will be for the rest of the run. So I'd like to get some early episodes where it's clear where they don't know what to do with Elaine yet. And then get into episodes where they do know what to do with Elaine. But I am excited to get into this and talk about it. And since I introduced it, I guess my job is to say, we'll see you, listeners, dear listeners, when we get back to you a few seconds, but to us, many weeks of watching Seinfeld. (laughs) Am I doing a good job, DJ? I can't hear over your laughter uh, how good of a job I'm doing. Perfect. So I'm doing Cut a great commercial. job. I can see Cut from your commercial. smile that I'm doing a great job and your laughter coming out of your smile. No notes. It's good to laugh. <laughs> okay, Damon, I want to try something. Okay, so. Good. I love trying new things. Two things that you love. Seinfeld and AI conversations. So I had ChatGPT draw up a conversation in the style of jerry and george from seinfeld but discussing Mm. our patreon page for this commercial so i think that you should be george and i'll be jerry because i can be kind of a bad at acting i can do that and i feel like you've got the george Mm -hmm. down so we've got this and i'm very neurotic about a variety of things yeah 
that are well in my ability to change. Okay, okay ready? great. I love a script that I've never seen before. Hey, Jerry, have you heard about the new podcast? It's called You're in a Child is an Idiot. Yeah, I heard about it. I heard it's terrible. What? No way. It's hilarious. It's all about the nostalgia of shows we watched growing up and the comedy that comes with it. Oh, really? Like what? Like how you used to steal your dad's credit card? Hey, that was for emergencies. And beside, I'm not the one who used to wear his mom's lipstick. <laughs> it was one time and it was a dare. Well, I dare you to support the show on Patreon. <laughs> Doing Fine. Work. But only if you do it too. Deal. Okay, this is an announcer now. Join George and Jerry on a journey down memory lane with Your Inner Child is an Idiot podcast. Support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Your Inner Child is an Idiot. And relive the good old days of laughter and nostalgia. Okay, listen. So I'm reliving nostalgia from my past, not even present nostalgia. I'm reliving the nostalgia that I had in the 90s and late 80s. Okay, so two things. This is, I also... Oh, that wasn't good. Okay, let's 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 go say. Let's go. Okay, ahead to I, I'm glad we're. Let's get it out of the way. It wasn't. It wasn't good. It wasn't funny. It wasn't <laughs> very. It was not completely off the dynamic between George and Jerry, but it wasn't accurate. They definitely talked to each other in the show. It was, however, better than 86 percent of our ads that we do. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it had a build up and then a release at the end when it stopped. The machines so are I coming like for that. us, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yourinnerchildisanidiot.com or patreon.com slash yourinnerchildisanidiot. Support the show. Listen more to these brilliant bits that we didn't write. Yeah. Get more <laughs> of the, the things we aren't responsible for. We watched a smattering of episodes of NBC's Seinfeld, of Jerry Seinfeld's Seinfeld. It's a little-known sitcom. Not a lot of people have seen it, so we're excited to reveal the exciting secrets, the fabulous <laughs> secrets of Seinfeld. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> All you had to do was say the show's name, and I watched you in real time just sort of have a nervous breakdown. I loved it. I feel like you're like feeling flop sweat when I was feeling, this is a funny bit I'm going to roll with. <laughs> So that makes me feel good. Now I'm definitely not going to concern for your health. Now I'm definitely not going to overthink every time I try to be funny for the rest of the show. So thanks, appreciate that. Because of my casual bullying. Yeah, my concern takes the form of bullying. Do you feel good about yourself now? Let's get into it. I've never felt good about myself, if we're being honest. <laughs> we started with the pilot. One point one. It's one tenth. One and one tenth of a of a show. Let's say I get. We're going to go back and forth on recaps. I got a little recap for for most of them, but yeah, we can go back and forth on recaps. Yep. Um, you want to take this one? Or you want me to? I'd be happy to. Do it. The pilot, originally titled "The Seinfeld Chronicles." We meet Jerry and George in a restaurant, not the restaurant we're familiar with. There's going to be a lot of things we're not familiar with in this episode, but we meet them in a restaurant. They're having a conversation. We find out that Jerry has met a girl when he was at a comedy show. He's a comedian. And she's coming into town, and he doesn't know what the status of their relationship is. Is she interested in him, or is she just coming over as friends? And, you know, George is trying to help him hash it out by going over what she said, the verbatim what she said. Anyway, you know, we meet our favorite character, uh, Claire, who works at the restaurant. Yeah. 
she'll be coming beloved up again. character. Everyone loves Claire. Yeah. Just the same. She's from the level of Uncle Leo or Newman, just constantly recurring. Mm-hmm. Anyway, eventually this woman comes to town. She always keeps like switching up the signals. Sometimes she's just saying, I might meet up with you if I have time. And yeah. then she, which Jerry and George take to mean that she's not going to come over, that she's not interested. But then she asks to stay at Seinfeld's apartment. Can't find a and, decent uh, hotel in New York City. Yeah, exactly. There's 11 million hotel rooms in this city. And then we meet Kramer, or at least a proto-Kramer. And, you know, he spoils the Mets game for Jerry, and eventually George and Jerry go to the airport to meet the woman, and, you know, George is talking about, you'll know immediately once she gets off the plane what she does. If she hugs you, that's a good sign. If she shakes your hand, that's a bad sign. And she instead comes and covers Jerry's eyes, and then when he turns around to see who it is, she grabs both of his hands and just sort of shakes them. (laughs) So they're still very confused. And then she goes back to Jerry's apartment and she asks if he has any wine. She takes off her shoes on the couch and he's like, oh, I get it. And then she mentions she's engaged. And that's the end of the episode. I always forget how just like, they just over. The episode yeah. ends. Yeah. I was like, oh, when the credits came out, I was like, is that the end? Now, there are also long stretches. I mean, this isn't foreign to as Seinfeld progresses, yeah. but there are much longer stretches of his stand-up yeah. in between almost every scene. We get a good two or three minutes of him doing stand-up, usually related to the subject he talked about. Yeah. You know what I liked about that recap is instead of a recap, it was like you just read the script really fast. <laughs> Like bullying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything's a little bit funhouse mirror, which makes sense for a pilot. They definitely don't have the rhythm quite there yet, but it's still like some funny, funny parts. There are funny lines. There's a lot of awkward pauses in between commercial yes. breaks where they're just like sort of, it just feels like they're staring off into space. And I'm like, hey, are we supposed to be here? Would you like yeah. me to leave? I feel like I'm intruding. I did like that uh, Jerry's apartment has a, I don't know what the proper word for it is, but it reminds me of a Wendy's atrium in the back, you know, that sort of glass like conservatory in the back. I'm like, what is that? Oh man. Yeah. Everything's just like not quite right, which yeah, that happens a lot when you're doing the pilots. Right. I think that's common in pilots. Like the Golden Girls, you know, gay male maid. Yeah. And then suddenly he disappears. Probably killed by Dorothy. Who knows? The daughter from, was that Happy Days that just like goes upstairs and never comes back down? <laughs> I think that's actually Family Matters. Family she matters. goes upstairs yeah. and never comes down. Kramer was probably the most startling in this episode, especially because he became such a Not cultural touchstone in the 90s. He looks like he smells like he comes in wearing sort of a tattered bathrobe and khaki shorts, from what I could tell. His hair is not high at all. And he looks kind of dirty. He looks like he smells is what I texted you. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not. And the dynamic is wrong, too. He's like more of a classic, typical wacky neighbor vibe. He's not like kind of the more dialed in weirdo that he becomes. Right. It's just sort of vague awkwardness is his vibe like he comes in and you know he seems to make both jerry and george very uncomfortable george more so and it's a real weird vibe as a big fan of the show when i watch the pilot again i'm like oh right this is all off i think the biggest thing that the pilot reveals is that like because it becomes such an ensemble show as we go on that it's really about the four of them and then all the crazy auxiliary characters but despite like despite one fourth of them not being here yeah that well and elaine's not in this episode but it makes sense that like this show was built on jerry and george's relationship because that's still it's not 
quite there, but it's much more there than anything else. Like their dynamic is when they're first stop talking, it's just them talking about <laughs> shit. It starts with a button conversation, which of course will come back in the finale. It's talking about yeah. how the second button's too high. And it's, it's stupid, uh, like a dumb conversation that you and I would probably have. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's, it's like, again, it's not quite hundred percent dialed in, but it is probably the best thing about it. And they have this big, long conversation in the laundromat. And that's – there's some really funny parts of that. It's not all together. Again, it's not smooth. But there's some really funny moments. Like when he starts going like, it's signals, Jerry. It's signals. That's We just went over this. He like funny. is genuinely upset that Jerry's asking him again about the girl. Yeah, I like that laundromat conversation. It's kind of a weird – I mean, I know that they sort of – the way they pitched the show was like it. We're just going to be watch. We're going to be following a comedian and learning where he gets his inspiration for jokes. Right. Because this laundromat scene is immediately followed by him telling jokes about you know right. how the laundromat is like the nightclub for clothes, and that's you know where they where the shirt grabs the pants and says let's dance, and then they have fun. It's dumb, but I mean it's sort of a premise. It's that a hook. Yeah, continues for a bit. The timing isn't right, but I do agree with you that George and Jerry are more or less there. George more than Jerry. Yeah. He's kind of annoying. Jerry's kind of annoying in this episode. Like, Yeah, he's just kind of whiny. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, we could talk about how maybe Jerry's a little overconfident, which I think there is sort of a meta joke in the, in the finale where Jackie Giles can't believe that he dated Terry Hatcher. And I'm like, no one can. Just yeah. don't worry about it, Jackie. <laughs> but yeah, he seems a little bit more of a sad sack than... Yeah. Than he is later in the season or later in the series where he's he's much more confident. And at least like the running joke later in the series is that he's always even Stevens like George will always be depressed. Elaine will be always semi successful and he'll always be somewhere in the middle. Right. And here he he seems like a kind of a whiny, whiny sad sack a little bit. And the, the fact that he's not sure about this lady. I feel like later in the series, he'd have more give and take with George about the signals, whereas here he seems to defer to George a lot. Like, right, he's like asking George's advice for some reason. Yeah, which doesn't seem like later Jerry at all. Well, and I think you made a good point about the, the framing with the stand-up because, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld is a legendary stand-up comedian, but like the show is way better than his stand-up comedy. And I think the show realizes that, or they realize that about the show as they're making it later on and this one it's still like kind of framing it it makes sense it's a pilot that's a premise but it's like it doesn't take long at least in the episodes that we watch like i don't know when it happens like exactly but they get away from that pretty quick where they're like it's just a framing device like right. at the beginning at the, the beginning end, and end and then occasionally i feel like they still do one somewhere but it's like that's basically the bookend because it's like that's his job this is the guy and then you're like oh right yeah. he's a comedian i forgot because <laughs> it doesn't really matter Yeah, and it takes up so much of this episode because they're much longer stretches than you typically get. I think in the second season and third seasons, he will still pop in like maybe halfway through the show, but most of it for the rest of the run. Up until I think the seventh season where they almost drop it entirely until the finale, it's just a framing device. Yeah, and it takes up so much of the show. I always feel like there's a third act to this Mm. this show that never happens, and I feel like I dupe myself every time I rewatch the pilot that pretty much the end joke is her revealing that she's engaged and that's the end of the show yeah and i'm like oh i thought there was like a third part of this but no it's just all his stand-up and it definitely won't be continued in the next episode which is is kind of (laughs) nice i mean there are some like running jokes but it's pretty like you definitely don't have to watch them no certainly it's it's definitely an erstwhile show where it's entirely episodic yeah i read a good article recently that it was was pining for more episodic shows yeah 
where I don't need, you know, constant backstory or like thing. They were talking, they used the example of the OC and how there's like one episode in the first season of the OC where the main character who now hates crypto so much, that actor, he like gets on the soccer team and there's like a rivalry with another player. And then soccer is never mentioned for the rest of this series. And it's like, who cares? And I feel like, especially with the running joke, the meta joke now of, you know, Jerry having so many girlfriends, like this show was never meant to be consumed, like in a four hour block, just back to back to back to back. Despite that's how we consumed it for this show. I just want to talk about just a few things. It's weird to see George in a hat, especially he he has, what is that called? Like a page boy cap? Oh yeah. And then he has like a bowling shirt on, like almost a neon orange bowling. It was so, I mean, I don't want to keep harping about, I mean, it's a pilot, this happens, but it's just so jarring to see him in this, in this outfit. And also Claire, I'm just so curious about what the initial plan for Claire was going to be. Yeah. So they, they're in this other diner that will eventually, I guess, evolve, shapeshift into Monk's Cafe. But there's a waitress named Claire, played by Lee Garlington, third build in the cast. And, I mean, she's she's not bad. She's yeah. like a sort of, sort of sarcastic a waitress. sassy server kind of vibe, which we've seen before. But she was good. She had a couple of good lines. Yeah, she's good. She has a good interaction with George. Like, yeah. at first, I thought George was a little bit off, too. But then the minute when he's like, hey, how do you know that's decaf? And she's like... And Jerry has that weird line, like, Claire's a professional waitress. I'm like, thank you for clarifying that, Jerry, because I couldn't figure it out. And she's like... Decaf, decaf left, left yeah. regular right. Decaf left, regular right. It's a real difficult job, George. <laughs> and then later she jokes to Jerry that she gave him some caffeine and George immediately out. like goes, I know there was something in there and yeah. starts rubbing his eyes. George is also a lot more Woody Allen than he is uh, yes. later on yeah. in the series. I really Which he even admits like the, there's one I think in a backstage thing he's talking to Larry David and I think it's the episode where he we didn't watch this episode but it's the episode where he quits like uh fantastically quits yeah. from his real estate job and apparently Jason Alexander went up to Larry David and he's like no one would ever do this no one would ever quit like this and Larry David was like what are you talking about this is exactly how I quit and he's like and that's when he realized like oh I shouldn't be playing this like Woody Allen I should be playing this like Larry David yeah which in retrospect smart change yeah yeah, at least for now. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, I'm always waiting for something bad to come out about either Larry David or Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's having a rough go of it, but that wasn't what I was expecting yeah, the bad news yeah. to be. We had that voicemail. That was pretty rough. Oh, the, yeah, that's true. The double handshake thing that Laura has... Because <laughs> they're, they're having this whole long conversation while she's, you know, the plane is is about to land and and they're talking about what, what handshake is good. They're demonstrating the hand sandwich, like slow mm-hmm. handshake, which is, which is pretty funny. But then she comes and, you know, covers his eyes, as you mentioned, and that that's confusing enough. And then when they go to shake, she's just like she's shaking his And he's looking at George. And George is not facing her. And, and, and he's just like... <laughs> that wasn't in the manual, he says later. That was the first like belly laugh of the part. The, like some of the other conversations were good, but that was like, that is really funny. That gets me every time actually, is that that look that George gives him when she's shaking his fists. The ham sandwich, I mean, that's like, I mean, it's not one of the most cherished Seinfeld lines, but it's definitely in that like mold of yeah. like coming up with random terminology, hand sandwich. Also, I mean, saying the buttons out in no man's land is... Also very, very Seinfeldian. I also like, can I get you anything? Bread, water, salad dressing. <laughs> salad dressing. <laughs> He's just a single guy. He has nothing in his apartment. I love that. 
you can't over dry or what does he say? You can't over dry for the same reason you can't over wet. Yeah, that is a very Seinfeld that's like from his standout. It sounds like like there's a different cadence that comes out when he you can tell this is a bit that they like worked mm-hmm. into the script, which he's is like, fine. I'm comfortable doing this. I can do a little all this do some shtick for a bit. Yeah, all of a sudden he's like performing more and like even later he's not like ever a super good actor but like it's not even worse it's just a different it's like if i started singing you know what i mean you're like mm, what are you what are you doing <laughs> jarring <laughs> except they're that raises my hackles all right i'm good without you, you want to move on yeah okay we also watched season two episode three the jacket i'll recap this one jerry please gets a please very, jerry gets a very expensive suede jacket george and jerry have to hang out with Elaine's dad when she's late for dinner with him and Jerry's jacket gets ruined. That's the basic beats oh, yeah. of it. Elaine's father. This is, is this the first and only appearance of Elaine's This father? is his first and only appearance. Apparently, the guy who played him, who I now can't remember the guy who plays him, he's a considerable actor. Lawrence Tierney. Okay. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. He's very gruff. He's very gruff. And from what I've heard about the backstage stuff, he's not unlike Alton Bennis, the, the character he's playing. He is very gruff and frightened them. That's why we he ne- does not become a Frank or a Morty. He never right. re- reappears again. We never see him again. He is genuinely terrifying. But I just want to say, this is one of my favorite early season episodes. And it got genuine belly laughs for me while I had to stop the tape because that just that scene because you were laughing so hard because I was so laughing wow. so hard and trying to keep notes of things that were making me laugh so hard <laughs> so we find out that that Elaine's father is like a very prominent author very yeah a very popular author and very respected author and he's very gruff apparently he's a Korean war veteran and he's just a no nonsense type guy my favorite quote from well maybe not my favorite quote from him but he says which one of you is the funny guy and george goes jerry jerry's the funny one and he says we had a funny guy in korea tail gunner they blew his brains out over the pacific nothing funny about that (laughs) and george i think they do it twice but they have drinks in front of them and both times they simultaneously grab their drinks and just sip it because it's so fucking awkward before we get to that scene because that is that i feel like that is clearly the highlight of this episode i could watch it all day i could they could have made that episode two hours long and i just watch them sit with alton bennis being the most uncomfortable people they could ever be the whole thing with jerry's new suede jacket which is like a horrible jacket (laughs) the fact that that it's like in movies about playwrights or writers where you have to just pretend like it's amazing the story they're writing is so amazing or or mr holland's opus is actually really good it's (laughs) this jacket you just have to sort of just go with it that this is a really attractive jacket because it's honestly it's it's one terrible. of the ugliest jackets I've ever seen. And it's got a, like a, a pink, which is part of the bit. Like it's got a pink and white striped inner lining, and they keep yeah this candy stripe lining. It's very weird, but- which is supposed to be ugly. But the rest of the jacket is also ugly. And yeah, that's why I object to the whole thing. But we also get a pretty good bit in that section, which is tie car wash. He's like holding. <laughs> <laughs> And what I really like about that is, yeah, the the little him doing that is funny, but also like it just shows two characters interacting likably like they like each other because they're they're like this cast. Of course, they're always like sniping at each other, but they also like genuinely seem to enjoy each other's company. You can see why they hang out, which I think is missing in a lot of shows. 
Yeah, it's like, absolutely. why would yeah. these people hang out? Like they crack each other up. They're having a good time. And then they, you know, they laugh and they argue and they enjoy having, you know, kind of contentious discussions with each other. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I could see that. They're all awful. And we get to that much more later, but it's like, they're funny. And so to see him do a little stupid bit, they're shopping together, things right. friends do. And she laughs. I don't know. I don't know why that little moment was just really special to me. Cause it was like, and you, you see a little bit of that, even at the beginning in the very first episode with George and Jerry, they like laugh a little bit and yeah, it's yeah. rough and weird and stuff. But like Elaine really, and I don't know if does she appear like immediately? I think, yeah, the next episode, episode in season one, she's introduced and appears. Cause she is like, she was very clearly the missing piece. They figured it out. Cause she is like amazing not to get into conclusions already, but already. I'm like, <laughs> no, she, she is great. She's my favorite of the four. I always say that I really want to be an Elaine, but deep down I know I'm a George. I do really love Julie Lou Dreyfus. I feel like they had trouble early on, and we didn't touch a lot in these early seasons because I think the next episode we talk about is the airport, which is, I think is the season where they finally go, oh, I figured out Elaine now. I think in these early seasons, because her character is explicitly, formerly, is Jerry's ex. And I think in an episode we didn't watch, he talks about how they just got along better as friends. And so she just sort of became his friend. But she's definitely tied to him and is not friends with George and isn't familiar all that much with Kramer. And I feel like they sort of stumbled and there was always this weird tension that they sort of kept going back to with her being his ex. I think there's an early episode where she they're at a dinner party together and he's interested in another woman and it causes this awkwardness. Right. And just a lot of that going back to that will. Yeah, and it's like, I don't think it ever was trying to give the vibe of a will they, won't they? Although there is a sort of episode in season two that they do that. But I think in season four is really where they hit their stride and it's like, oh, we don't have to keep going to this well of her being the girl, the outlier with these boys. Let's make her one of the boys. Like, right. let's make her just as crazy, give her a reason as, yeah. why she's hanging out with these three idiots. Yeah. And they do that really well. I mean, I do like her in these early seasons, but I feel like you can tell that there's like something different about her than the the other three. But back to your original point. I love it in sitcoms when funny people say funny things and other people laugh at them because they are funny. Yeah. I think the first time I noticed it, although it sh I should have noticed it in Seinfeld, but I remember taking note of it in Bob's Burgers when funny things happen and they will chuckle about it. Yeah. I find it really ch charming like you do. I love it. I don't know why it doesn't happen more because a lot of times people are sniping and saying genuinely funny things because they've been written by a team of writers and no one's laughing. And I'm like, how do you guys stand each other? And why do you just stand around awkwardly while you, the studio audience laughs? Well, and as much as like we've touched on a little bit, but we'll see it as it goes on that, that Jerry is not the greatest actor, but he's kind of always got this little smirk. Even yeah. when something is like they're having an argument or it's like a serious, very, very few really serious things happen in the show. But like it kind of makes sense, right? Because all of these things are pretty low stakes. Like even when oh, like, yeah. it's like, oh, I, I didn't get the bread, the rye, you know, we talk about later. Like it's like, who the fuck cares? And so <laughs> and that's kind of also his vibe as a character. So it kind of makes sense that he'd always be just kind of like. Like that's his whole status. So, but anyway, sorry, back. I just wanted to touch on that because he also getting to their dynamic, George and Jerry are in the apartment and I don't remember what George says, but he called Jerry, Jerry like, yeah, what are you, you, you stupid idiot. And he goes, what are you, Bud Abbott? What are you calling me an idiot for? He calls him out immediately. Like that is not our vibe. And I really, I really liked that. 
Yeah, the Bud Abbott, even though I had to look up who Bud Abbott was, the Bud Abbott line made what? me laugh really. Who is Bud Abbott? He died in 1979. Why do you know who Bud Abbott, Abbott is? Abbott and Costello. Oh, of course. It's it makes the, sense now. The original George and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then that's fine. Um, Cut out that I didn't know who he was. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it, it really, it had the cadence of a joke, so I knew to laugh. That's not the important thing. It was just, just him being like, no, don't it was call really, me an idiot. We a, don't do that to each other. You <laughs> it know? was a really great line, and it was a really good like friendship line. Yeah. Okay, now let's get to what Sorry. we want to get to, which is... The ugliest jacket in the world? Or wait, I do want to say this one, and I only cite this because it's a rare instance where I genuinely laughed at the stand-up part. Yeah. When Jerry is saying that clothes are so stupid and he hates he hates picking out his little outfits, and he's like, he references that anytime there's time travel in a movie, the people from the future, they've just figured it out. <laughs> Silver jumpsuit, V-stripe, boots, that's it. Yeah. Like, that's what we're wearing. <laughs> We're all wearing the same outfit and they like voted on it and they had a fashion show and decided this is what earthlings are wearing. I really laughed that. I just like it. What does he say when George is admitting someone is attractive and he says, and I say this with an unblemished, with an unblemished record of heterosexuality. Like but it's that. fabulous. Yeah, it is fabulous. Uh, well, oh, they're talking, talking about the jacket. jacket. That's the right. ugliest jacket in the world. That's right. I like that. I just want to describe this jacket real quick. It yeah. is a suede jacket. I'm not a suede person. I think it yeah. stinks. And then it's a bomber jacket. So it's like really short-waisted with the um, elastic. Flattering to anyone. Big yeah. poofy sleeves. Like, what are you, fucking maverick? Like, stop it. No one wear bomber jackets. This was um, like 1990, right? someone. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it's not. Yeah, exactly. And it's like this really dark like chocolate color that just doesn't really go with anything he decides to wear with it, which is a very Jerry Seinfeld thing. But you just have to keep seeing scenes after scenes of everyone going, this is amazing. This is an amazing jacket. What a jacket. <laughs> I laughed out loud when Jerry says, and this is not a joke, this may be the most perfect jacket I've ever seen. <laughs> He's the like immediately jacket. smitten with it. Oh, I just want to get this out of the way too, because this is a very like er-George moment for me. When George says, I'm not even going to ask. I want to know, and if you want to tell me, go ahead, but I'm not even going to ask. And then he goes, but how much was it? Yeah. Was it 200, 300? And he keeps like, not only keeps guessing higher and higher prices, but gets legitimately not only angry, absolutely <laughs> livid that Jerry doesn't say <laughs> Jerry word. won't tell him. The, Jerry yeah. just says nothing. And he goes, I am going to walk out of here. If you don't say anything, I'm going to assume it was over $1,000 and I will walk out of here. It's amazing to watch jason alexander just go off uh, and it, yeah shit. jerry is completely silent smirking but it's really is a really great scene it's so funny yeah okay so they they're meeting elaine and her father for dinner and he she is late so she doesn't show up so they just have to be there with him he's very gruff he's very short with them he's at least one scotch in when yeah. they arrive as you mentioned at one point jerry leaves to go to the bathroom and <laughs> george is like don't go and he actually Pulls his arm away like a kid. I love, <laughs> I love that bit. And then they're in the bathroom and somehow George sneaks away too. He always tells me he has to call his somebody. He has to make a phone call, which is a, only something you could get away with for a, a 10 more years after this. Oh, I just remembered something. I have to go away and make a phone call. And then <laughs> it's like a locker room conversation. He's like, they're like at the sink in the bathroom and he's like splash water on his face. And he's like, I can't go back out there. That was rough. 
And George, this is maybe one of my all-time favorite lines. George says, if Elaine doesn't come in the next 10 minutes, we have to leave. And then Jerry says, what are we going to say to her? He says, we're going to say we're frightened and we have to go home. <laughs> like It's a very uh, short declarative sentence delivered in such a way. But the fact that he <laughs> says the, the plan is to tell this gruff man we are frightened and we have to go home. <laughs> it's ludicrous to me. I laugh every time. When they sit down, Alton Bennis tells him to like order some drinks. Jerry orders cranberry juice with two limes. And what does G- George order? It's a club soda and something. I can't remember. Oh, no ice. He says no yeah. ice. A club soda with no ice. And, you know, Alton Bennis orders a scotch with ice. And <laughs> George says, you like ice? <laughs> and Alton goes, huh? <laughs> And he goes, I say, you like ice? <laughs> he just goes, like it. That's it. It just made me laugh so much. Because why would you say it's that just to a person? All so but it's awkward. definitely what I would say. Yeah. Because what else I'm you so uncomfortable. Say? He says something about some like war story. And they, I can't remember if it was George or Jerry that goes like, sure, Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's very good. And this, I will say this, this episode is pretty rough still. Like it's got lots of weird- It's second season, right? Yeah. It's got lots of weird transitions. Kramer is still not all the way there. He's closer, but he's still off the mark. It's still like we have Kramer at home and it's second season Kramer. It's not, it's not exactly right. Yeah. It's still pretty awkward, but it definitely is miles better than the pilot already and this is a definitely a memorable episode even with all that it's just fun to watch shows (laughs) okay i have to sneak one in because i accidentally watched the contest oh yes which i'm gonna blame on you because you said 4.10 episode yeah sure i mean i gave you the episode titles too but you're probably curious like when's the airport gonna start masturbating with them but i I didn't look at uh, the title i just went to the thing because look some of us were cooking cleaning you know some of us have lives. <laughs> Whereas I just sit and I'm fed grapes. <laughs> but of course, the one I watched the contest, which is one of the famous episodes, which is George's mom catches him masturbating and she <laughs> faints from embarrassment and ends up in the hospital. She's fine. This is our first Estelle, I believe. Is it this really? Is the first appearance of Estelle Costanza. She's great. Treating his body like an amusement park. <laughs> George, Jerry, Elaine and Kramer start a bet. And who can hold out the longest without self-pleasure. And it's called The Contest. And it is, this episode's excellent. <laughs> it's really good. And it's also, I remember, I've seen interviews with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who's like, you know, she was very pleased to be part of it. Because I think the initial idea was that they, just the three guys would be in yeah. on it. And that's even alluded to in the script You're itself. You're like, no, she has like, to pay more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she's not the last to go, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to get into it because we got another other episodes to talk about. But I mean, it does it in a very evasive way, a very 90s way. They never say the word masturbation or anything mm-hmm. like that. And the only illusion you get when someone has broken the bed is you see them sleeping soundly in their bed yeah. and everyone else is sort of tossing and turning. I think there's like two little interstitials where you catch up with everyone and they're... That's very good. Yeah, because Kramer's out first and he's sleeping. just sleeping like a baby. I love it. <laughs> Okay, so the real third one we watched was The Airport, season four, episode 11, I think. 11 or 12? Anyway, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The Airport. You want to recap this one? Yes, I do, in fact. 
Jerry and Elaine have gone to, I think it was St. Louis. Jerry was doing a show and Elaine got to see her sister and they're coming back and George is going to pick them up. George lost a bet (laughs) with Jerry. We can go into it if you want. And the deal was he didn't have to pay for the bet if he just picked him up from the airport. And so George, I guess, ropes Kramer into it. Tyler during this was like, so George is doing nothing because he's not even driving. Kramer's driving. So it's like, yeah, this is how you get out of the bet, which is actually pretty in character. Now, originally, Jerry and Elaine are going to fly into Kennedy, I think, but the flight's canceled and they get a different flight, but that's landing in LaGuardia about a half an hour later. So there's sort of this bouncing back and forth where Kramer and George go to Kennedy first, then they see the flight was rerouted to LaGuardia, then they go to LaGuardia, and then they find out the flight was sent back to Kennedy. And we also see that Jerry and Elaine are able to get these tickets, but one is in first class and one is in coach. Jerry takes the first class ticket and Elaine is stuck in coach. And you sort of see this great like back and forth between their two experiences as Jerry sits next to a Calvin Klein model and has like a delicious like hot fudge sundae and cookies. And he talks about the flowers in the bathroom. And Elaine has one of the most miserable experiences in the bath. She's in steerage, basically. Yeah, basically. Sitting next to a guy who doesn't like to check his luggage. So he has like two suitcases just stacked on his lap and he immediately falls asleep. I chose this one because it's a great example of like, for me, when Elaine becomes Elaine, as we know her for the rest of the series, a little bit violent, a little bit like, you know, angry, but still very charming naturally. Did I miss anything? Yeah, I mean- Kramer has like a little, he sees someone who he thinks is, I don't know if we ever established whether the guy actually is this guy or not, but he's someone who looks like an old roommate of Kramer that owed him money. And $240. He ends up 20 like years ago. Buying a ticket <laughs> on a different flight to go like confront him. And then they get, of course, Kramer gets off, but George gets stuck on the plane because he had a co- like taunted a, a convict that was in handcuffs. Cause he, it, this is too stupid to explain, but it is, it's pretty funny. They also, when they're driving to when George and Kramer are driving, pick him up. <laughs> you see a little bit of a fun dynamic between those two, which we hadn't seen in previous episodes. They like they make up this little song. They're like, "I like to stop at the duty free shop. I like to stay." It's <laughs> the duty free shop, and then you. I think the scene ends right when they're really getting into it, which yeah. makes it even funnier. They they're just about to start harmonizing, and then yeah. the, the scene cuts. It's very good. Also, speaking of Elaine being funny, so. She's trying not to like actually wake the guy up, but she really needs to pee. And the guy's just like sleeping right here. And she's just looking at him and she's in her mind. There's a voiceover of her mind. And she's looking at him and she's like, wake up, wake up. <laughs> she's just looking at him. It's like, why don't you just wake him up? But I, it's so funny. And I love it so much. She's great in this. Like she's really like sometimes the put upon bits, it irks me in shows. And this Toes the line pretty well, I think, where it's like, it's still funny, even though she's getting shit on the whole episode. What irks you? Is there another example of one that does irk you that you can think of? I can't think of one in Seinfeld, but like, this is why I can't do Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's like too far with the awkward. Yeah, the awkward comedy that- Awkward, and it just like keeps going, like meet the parents. Like I don't, that just is not my cup of tea, humor-wise. I I see the humor in it, but there's like a limit for me, and those go past it, and this- Still sits, it sits, you know, near the ceiling, but it doesn't go over for me. Like it, 
it's just because maybe it's just her. She sells it. And then you also get the contrast of Jerry just having the time of his life. More anything? More everything! Also absurd. He's like a Roman emperor up in the front. (laughs) And she's like, you know rowing the the Roman ship. There's also a great dynamic, sort of like the Thai car wash at the beginning when they're they're driving to the airport when they're still in St. Louis, Elaine and Jerry. And Elaine's like singing some stupid song. And Jerry just goes, could you do me a favor? Could you shut up? And she laughs again, the, yeah, the, the shared friends. laughter, because she knows she's being fucking annoying. Yeah. And when they get their ticket, when their, their original flight is canceled and they get the ticket going into LaGuardia, as I said, there's only a first class and a coach. And Jerry goes, well, I'll take the first class. And Elaine's like, Jerry? And he's like, have you ever flown first class? And she's like, no. And he's like, exactly. I can't go back to coach. I can't. I won't. <laughs> and she goes, well, fine. If the plane crashes, everybody in first class will die anyway. And he goes, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> My favorite line, though, is, so the guy's name that owes him money is Grossbeer, Grossbard. And Gross Bart. Gross Bart. The most ludicrous name, I feel like. <laughs> it's when they go back to the airport because the flight has switched back. So they go mm-hmm. back to the original airport. <laughs> he goes, listen to the bell, Gross Bart. It tolls for thee. <laughs> I also like to Michael Richards when he confronts Gross Bard, he does this weird thing where he's like, recognize someone and he pushes his hair back and then like pinches his collar shut yeah and it's like who were you in this other life he's like recognize someone and then he like does it in profile like the the guy wouldn't recognize him otherwise it's this weird but very specific yeah thing he does it's very charming when he even though he is a racist when he does this with his hair though it is he immediately looks different it is kind of wild oh yeah I mean, that's why I think seeing him in that first episode where his hair is just sort of flat, it's like, who is this gross man that's wandered into your apartment? I was just going to talk about George, um, his complete freak out about Kramer getting on the Long Island Expressway rather than taking the Van Wick. He says, why are you getting on the Expressway? It's a suicide mission. (laughs) I do like George's ability to take everything to an 11 immediately. And he like he had planned out the the thing. He's like, I've planned this out to right a, there. to the T. We're gonna yeah. get there 17 minutes after their plane lands. Gives them enough time to get their bags, hop in the car, and then the minute one thing goes wrong, he's like, this is pointless. This is all not worth it. Also, the bet was he bet that he could <laughs> jump high enough to touch the awning, and Jerry was like, no, you can't. And he didn't get close, so he owed him 50 bucks. But he's like, instead of paying it, you can pick me up from the airport. Right. What does he say? I was thinking of a different awning. Yeah. <laughs> is when Kramer calls him out on it. Also, just to acknowledge it, I don't think it matters to the story at all, but the airplane and airport hijinks don't hit quite the same way as they did pre-9-11, but... True. You know. People running to the baggage claim and running all in the, the airport. All the hijinks everywhere. The, yeah. yeah. It's, it, no one's doing this. I can't get over that there's this, I guess, prisoner who has been caught and being transferred somewhere else for trial. Just he's just sort of in the airport. He's he's getting a Time magazine when George grabs the last Time magazine, escorted in by the, presumably Hudson out. News. Uh, yeah, <laughs> escorted by two FBI agents. George wants to pick it up because there's a blurb about Jerry, and Jerry might have mentioned George's name. Like it's so Which like he didn't. We minuscule. find out, and he didn't even mention George in the end. And he goes when the prisoner is like. I need that Time magazine. He's like, no, you don't understand. There's a blurb about me in here. 
And the guy's like, you're a blurb. Look at the cover. And the cover is him and the headline caught. <laughs> and then George has, I think I'll enjoy my Time magazine. Maybe I'll read it in the, tomorrow, is what he says. In the park. It's supposed to be a beautiful day. And that's what really gets his ass kicked in the yeah. act. He also gets a whatever happened to baby Jane reference when, it, when the guy goes, if I wasn't in these shackles. And he's like, but yeah, you are in them shackles. Which makes me laugh. And when I finally saw whatever happened to Baby Jane later, I was like, oh, that's, yeah. well, that's what he's <laughs> I, doing. I didn't get okay. That <laughs> Joan Crawford's character is in a wheelchair. And she, at some point she says, if I wasn't in this chair, and Betty Davis says, but you are in that chair, Blanche. Ah, okay. So the next one we watched was The Beard. Yes. S- Talking about homosexual season, issues season in, in the 1990s New York. Season six, episode 15. Yes, very topical. <laughs> Elaine agrees to fake date a gay friend to be his beard, and then she tries to convert him back yes. to straight. George also gets a toupee that makes him overconfident. Uh, that is the real reason I requested this episode, but the beard is a fun bit, and it's not not that there's anything wrong with that. It's not that episode. So right. we get to talk about homosexuality and Seinfeld from a different lens. Yeah, do you want to- This is NPR, smooth and smarmy. <laughs> Do you want to do that first or do you want to, so we can end with the funny bits? (laughs) I mean, the beard's not overwhelmingly offensive. It's maybe a little bit like clueless, although, you know, someone might disagree with me. You know, Did you ever have a beard in your life? (laughs) My life's full of beards. Uh, Never, never a deliberate beard like in this situation. Yeah. But there were instances where people were like, oh, I saw you hanging out with that girl the other day. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And they're like, she was very pretty. I'm like, so I've been told. (laughs) Not doing anything for me. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, you know, in rural suburban Tennessee, I'll let people think what they want to think and just, get the fuck out of here and then eventually move back here <laughs> eventually. I imagine it's just easier sometimes. Not that yeah, I can I'm speak like, I don't for have you, to come out to, to the guy at the Kroger, do I? It's really none of his fucking business. <laughs> so yeah, she goes on a date with this guy to Swan Lake. With his boss, his seemingly conservative boss, and she really hams it up to JLD's credit. She's like, oh, well, you know, he's such a guy's guy. He was not a one-woman man, I can tell you that. But, you know, he loves his football. I can't remember what all that she says. But he also has his other side, his going to see Swan Lake or listening to Liza Minnelli belt out a few numbers. It's very charming. And then when he comes back, she like plants a big kiss on him when he's back from the bathroom. Also, it's Robert Mailhouse from, I know him from... He's something in Sports Night. That's the only reason I recognize him. <laughs> I did like Jerry says when she's describing this plan to him, and he says, and yet we discover yet another talent, posing as a girlfriend for homosexuals, <laughs> which makes me laugh. You were generally unoffended by this episode, though. Generally, yes. I mean, the second half when she does actually sleep with this guy is probably the most offensive of it. But then he immediately like converts back, like almost like a scene later. And the explanation is pretty good, which is, which Elaine says, look, let's, I mean, I have access to the equipment 30, 45 minutes a week. If I'm and lucky. that's a good week. Yeah. How am I supposed to compete with people who own this equipment <laughs> and have access to it 24 hours a day? And Jerry says, that's why their team loses very few players, <laughs> which makes me laugh and sort of writes any perceived wrongs, I think, from the actual conversion. Yeah. And I mean, it's there's 90s jokes about gay people liking, you know, Liza and shopping, which I think are relatively inoffensive, although someone might take offense to them. I don't know. They're just sort of, I wouldn't even say lazy jokes. They're just sort of 
stereotypes. Yeah. It's out of, you know, by the book jokes about gay people. I guess for me, it's nothing vicious towards gay people, at least in this episode. So it doesn't bother me at all. It's a very like, even though some of the seasons were before this law, like it's a very don't ask, don't tell vibe. Like, you know, it's it's very indicative of the era of the 90s, like the sort of attitude True. towards gay people, which was like. Like if you're progressive, which these characters kind of are and the writers behind it probably are for the time, their whole thing is not like persecute gays, but their whole thing is like, just don't be all up in my face about it. You know what I mean? It's that whole like, <laughs> it's very of its era because they also talk about it. They're not like afraid to talk about because they're talking about all kinds of more social things. So they, you know, there's the, not that there's anything wrong about it the episode. And then there's right. like, which will, the the street toughs that we'll get to in the next episode that we watch. <laughs> I genuinely love the gay street toughs in the Soup Nazi episode. I'd be happy to talk about it when we get there. Yeah, yeah I mean, the more famous episode, not that there's anything wrong with that, which was a GLAAD Award winner at the time, is also sort of dated. And what's yeah. interesting about it is that it's sort of like of two minds in that it sort of introduces this gay panic trope and also is dismantling it at the same time where it's kind of making fun of how like just half-assed throwing something in like... It's almost making fun of the attitude of don't be on my face about it. It's making fun of that a little bit. And Jerry, I think, you know, buys into it a lot more than George does. There are a few allusions in later episodes where George is very concerned about being perceived as homosexual. Elaine has a great line. She's like, you know, just saying that a man attractive does not necessarily make you a homosexual. And George says, it doesn't help. And I think there's a really meta episode, I think really later down the line, where George dates a woman who looks like Jerry. Oh, that's right. And Kramer, being Kramer, just says what everyone's thinking. He's like, just because you're dating a she-Jerry doesn't mean you secretly wish to have everything you have with Jerry, but also, you know, a sexual relationship. (laughs) And it's really, I think I mauled it, but it's really great reading from Michael Richards, just point blank saying what everyone's thinking. And there are episodes, I don't know if this was like a whole episode topic, but like he, Jerry is commonly mistaken for gay because he's... Single, thin, and neat. That was like the stereotype. Yeah, that's in that. Not that there's anything wrong with that okay. episode. Okay. He's like, instead of doing, what is he, he says, instead of doing this, which I think is sort of a lost gesture now where you sort of tilt your hand back and forth. I think he's a little, mm. he suggested that we do a vacuum cleaner as, <laughs> as the stereotype, which, you know, also seems offensive now. But I mean, I feel like at the time was like kind of, I don't know. I have a, a thing with stereotypes where I don't mind them if they are... I feel like stereotypes go through an evolution where they're born. For example, Jerry saying that all gay men are neat. Where in the 90s, that was not a common thing about gay men. It was this all this other stuff, all these like negative things. And so this birth of this idea of like, why don't we say this thing about them? But then as time goes on, that also becomes a trope and a stereotype and sort of lazy in and of itself. Whereas I think from Jerry's perspective, he would be saying, well, I'm, you know, my experience with homosexuals is this. Why do I keep saying homosexuals like it is 1992 (laughs) in my brain? (laughs) Anyway, I think I've dug my hole in deep enough. You know, I'm sure we can unpack that in therapy later. I think it's just like, like, I mean. Gay people are okay, DJ, is what I'm saying. uh, I know you want to fight it. Some of them, but it's like no one in this room. If you hadn't grown up, I think we also grew up with this show a lot more. And so it's not even that you're, you can't look back and see that things are dated, but you're also kind of like, 
again, it's not for me to say, but it doesn't seem that bad as things go. They're not calling people the F word. They're not, you know, like belittling people or, or anything like that. Which like, At the time, it was like a groundbreaking show where people aren't like, I mean, I don't want to overplay it. It's not like yeah. it's fucking, you know, Angels in America or something. But right. it is It is this moment in pop culture where a very popular show is like, I'm not going to use them for a punchline. Not that there's not that in the entire run of Seinfeld. There's plenty of, you know, moments that are less, that land worse than these these moments. But the punchline the is their homophobia instead, you know, which, yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So it's a more minor kind of point in this. And he like, like you said, he. He never is not. It doesn't take. (laughs) He is never not gay. He just sleeps with a woman, which I know several gay men who have slept with women because they're like, I don't know. You're like. (laughs) Robin Williams in the birdcage. A noted homosexual. Yeah. Robin Williams. He was one of the people that I know. So. (laughs) (laughs) I also, we meet a character that we're going to know for the rest of the of the series here in this episode. And that is the the outdoor New York set. Oh, I thought you were going to say the get out shove. That is wondrous. But the minute I saw the Tonga Lounge sign in the background when they were walking, I was like, uh, I know that sign. And every time I'm like, what's at the Tonga Lounge? I just want to know what's happening at the Tonga Lounge, guys. I like referencing, I don't know if we said this in the introduction, but I like referencing the New York set of Seinfeld, especially in parts of Nashville that have been recently gentrified Mm. and been redone. They have a very outdoor New York City set (laughs) vibe to them. So I like that they have this and it's not just Jerry's apartment, Monk's Cafe. But if you've ever been to New York, you're like, something's off here. Some sort of weird, you know, alternate universe New York where everything's clean and really close together. And this city with a famous grid pattern streets all have like blunt dead ends as far as the eye can see. Yeah. But anyway, the other recurring character is Elaine's get out shove shoving shoving people that are violent Elaine. I love her gets more and more intense as the series go. I like that because there is not a lot of through lines. There's occasional references. There's occasional callbacks. But that is one that that keeps going. And do they ever talk about the get out shove or is it just a. They never talk about it explicitly, but remember the Bizarro episode where she meets all those like people that yeah. are kind of, she pushes one of them and it, it does not land the same. He's like, oh my God, like he's really bothered by it. And in the Soup Nazi episode, I mean, she shoves, <laughs> she shoves Screamer through knew, a swinging well, door and he falls a, down. A highlight. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but I don't think anyone ever addresses it. And it's funny, we see it for the first time because of the episodes we watched. Jerry is doing it to Elaine, right? Yeah. Just kind of softly. And <laughs> she's also kind of, Elaine's kind of violent in general. And <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, which we'll get to in a second. But so George has this very bad toupee that he is very happy about, but the, his friends do not like. And he's meeting a new woman that Kramer is setting him up with because Kramer is very impressed by the toupee. Oh, he loves it. And Cherry <laughs> says, you going to tell her about your little hat there? <laughs> And yeah, your little, uh, your hair hat. And he's like, don't you think- What are you talking about? Don't you think she should know? Yeah, Yeah, George is like completely in denial at this point. George is overwhelmingly smug in this episode, charmingly so. But he says, with my personality and this head of hair, you know what I am? I am in the game. I no longer defer to the quaffed. I am in it. Which uh, (laughs) I never noticed that he says, I no longer defer to (laughs) To the the quaffed. quaffed. (laughs) And yeah, he, he talks about the hair hat. 
And Jerry's like, don't you th- see people staring at you in the street? And he's like, I see people staring because they like what they see. Like, George is insufferable. Like, George is the type of person, if you give him even a modicum of power, he becomes the worst, the worst. person in the world. So it's good that the world crushes him at every every <laughs> opportunity. And then, of course, we get the the finale for his... Well, not I really, but there's an epilogue, but which is Elaine grabbing it and saying, I'll let you do it. She grabs the toupee off his head. After, like, a more smugness from him, she grabs his... She swipes at it at first. It's a great, like physical ballet between Jason and her. She swipes at it and then she like grabs it, pushes him against the door, grabs it. And it seems to be stuck. Like I think they mime it, but it looks like she has to really rip it off of his head. And she runs to the window, pulls up the blinds and just screams like bellowing, like crazed eyes saying, I don't like this thing. And here's what I'm doing with it. And she throws it out the window. And then she's just so pleased with herself. Like she's gotten rid of this horcrux. The physical comedy continues to because George Cassini like goes through the window right as the shade like falls on him. <laughs> yes. It's really perfectly done. It's really amazing. And then after it's like removed from his head, he's like, you know, I'm going to give that bald woman a call. And she breaks up with him because she likes a slimmer man, says, <laughs> says George. That's oh. so funny. It's great. It's just great. It's not as good as that, but there's also a good bit that I think of all the time for some reason, which is Elaine and Jerry are talking and she has like a juice and she, she's like, oh, this is awful. And he's like, I wrote you, it down myself. Did you shake it? And she's like, oh, I'm tired. She just can't be bothered. She's like, I'm tired of shaking everything. And then you just got to shake everything these days. I'm she tired gives of like the gentlest shake. He's like, oh, yeah, this is a real noose. <laughs> I do think of this it anytime I have me. to drink something, I have to shake. <laughs> yeah. It made me realize, actually, I think when I was a kid, the first time I saw that, I was like, I don't have to shake things so hard. Because <laughs> when I say, when it says shake well, I think I got to really go no, for it. No, you've got to be like a paint mixer. Yeah. You've got to like, <laughs> and I like, still shake things like like a deranged lunatic. Like I've got the milk, well, the oat milk. When we have oat milk in the house, I'm shaking it like a lunatic. Like you're on cocktail. Yeah, like I'm fucking yeah. Tom Cruise in cocktail. I'm <sighs> sick of shaking. I did write it. It's great. Okay, so... Oh, just one more thing, because there's a Tupperware story in this. And Jerry asks Kramer if he could just put a casserole in a bag, which I was like, what are you talking about? I think he's talking about Ziploc. You could. Still. I mean, you could, but how do you get a casserole, famously rectangular casserole, into a bag? It's refrigerated. It comes in parts and blocks. You just stick the different blocks in the Ziploc, man. I think you're giving Jerry too much credit. Probably. He did create this show. <laughs> He's got all the credit he needs. Okay, so we're we're just going to keep going. It's going to be a bit of a long one, Damon. They can pause it on their podcast app. Okay, this is a good time to go get, get a drink of water, catch your breath. Make a sandwich. Shake or, out your you know, arms. You know, maybe stretch. Maybe do some stretching. Fill out a spreadsheet if you're working. If you're working. Maybe don't forget that dish that you've been soaking if you're doing the dishes. Make sure it's crumbs. Okay. We're going to move on. Because the to- vibe I get from people who soak dishes is that they want to get back to it. That's always the, <laughs> the feeling I get. Like, I'm really, give it an hour. Come I'm on, really going to come back come to that. Come right back to you. <laughs> we watched next The Soup Nazi Season 7, Episode 6. We did not watch anything in Season 5. I have no idea what happens in Season 5. Could be anything. Space aliens. Yeah, it's probably one of Elaine's pregnancies in there. One of Julia's pregnancies being covered up with long coats, you know, laundry baskets, you know, always got big boxes with her. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true. Will you please recap this episode for me? Thank you. For you, for the people. So what we got here is 
a classic character being introduced. We find Jerry and Kramer have been frequenting this soup restaurant run by a guy who's very particular about the ordering process. Some people refer to him as the soup Nazi. Kramer doesn't, but Jerry does. And Jerry's going to take George and Elaine to go get some soup. On the way, Elaine sees a beautiful armoire being sold by a guy on the street. And she abandons the other two guys because she wants to get the armoire because it's a great deal because she got the nice face discount, $200. Jerry's also dating Alexandra Wentworth. I can't remember her character's name. And they're very affectionate towards each other. They call each other schmoopy. They talk in these cute voices. Drives George and Elaine up the wall. So when they get to the soup Nazi's place, George doesn't get any bread. And he has the temerity to ask for that bread that's supposed to come with his meal. And he is refused soup. Jerry gets the soup and eats it in front of George. And George is absolutely furious. Why can't we share? <laughs> Elaine gets her armoire. She buys the armoire. But she finds out the rule from the landlord is that there's no moving in furniture on Sundays. New York. That seems like a New York thing. Yeah. I mean, it's so specific. I'm like, this must be a thing that actually happens because it's so random. And so she's left with the armoire on the curb. So she asks Kramer to come watch it for her during the night, which he's happy to do. But while he's watching it, two coded homosexual street toughs come. <laughs> they're not street uh, they toughs love at the, all, really, it seems like. They're just guys. It's such ludicrous characters that it's hard for me to even be offended by them because they're so absolutely out there that I'm like, I love every minute of this. I want all of this. I want to spin off with these characters. They steal the armoire from Kramer and off the street and... Elaine goes to meet George for soup, and she offends the soup Nazi, gets banned for one year. And Kramer eventually gets her her another armoire to replace what was lost. But lo and behold, it was property of the soup Nazi and has all of the soup Nazis' recipes in it. And Elaine uses that to shut the soup Nazi down. She publishes all his recipes, and and he moves to Argentina, (laughs) naturally. Am I missing anything? No, I I don't think so. That's it. I think so. I think most of the, all the stories in this episode revolve in some way touch on the soup Nazi. Yeah, because eventually the schmoopy lady, they're in line together schmooping, and she like is offended by the way the soup Nazi talks to her and <laughs> makes Jerry choose between her and the soup, basically, and he picks the soup. He apologizes I never to realized, her. this is the first time I realized there's a Sophie's Choice reference. Really? Yeah. He's forced to choose between the soup and his girlfriend, and he chooses the soup. This is what comes from living under a Nazi regime. (laughs) (laughs) I love how, like, that is obviously absurd and it's supposed to be. But it's also, like, again, the low stakes, like, how not seriously he takes anything. Like, he just, his girlfriend essentially just broke up with him because (laughs) he chose a soup and he was like, "Eh, it's really good soup. And he's like, it's probably more likely that I can repair things with her than with this crazy man serving delicious (laughs) soup, which is like, he's kind of right. Like... (laughs) But it's not, he's not a good person. There's a lot of good lines in this. Obviously, no soup for you is going to be the one that people say. Larry Thomas. I just want to give a shout out to Larry Thomas is the guy who plays the soup Nazi. He's He's a character after, he's popped up in a lot of things. uh, But of course, I mean, he made quite a splash in this episode. Soup splash. Soup splash. Be careful. It's hot. But probably my favorite line is, (laughs) I got to focus. I'm shifting into soup mode, which I've seen (laughs) on a meme when fall comes around, which is... Which is nice. I like that. The street toughs are great. Uh, so one of them is like, he has like a really pretty stereotyping. Was it like, I don't even know what, what he's got an accent. he's trying to do. He's but. got a 
Central American or some sort of Spanish-esque accent. But what's crazy about it is, so one of them is like pretty aggressive. One of the the characters is really aggressive towards Kirby. He's like, I'm taking it basically. And then his partner is like, come on, it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then they take it. And then later... Jerry and Kramer confront them. They see them on the street and they confront the street toughs. And the one that was reasonable before is the one that starts going on first. He's like, are you, are talking, you talking to me? To me or are you talking to him? And then the other one comes in. It's like, I would, they run away, which I would absolutely do. I'll say this. So I looked up the actors who play the street toughs. The Spanish-ish one is played by Yul Vasquez, who is Cuban. He was born in Cuba. Okay. So I guess I can't really Cuban. pick yeah. on him. Although who knows whose choice was to really play up the accent. And the other one named Ray is John Paragon, who passed away in 2021. Oh, no. I've seen Yul Vasquez in The Watcher. Did you see that on HBO with... Well, yeah. Who was he in that? He was like a cop. Oh. Just, you know, Johnny Cops a lot. Remember that? That was a really good half of a show. Remember The Watcher? Yeah, they don't quite stick the landing on that one. They also get... King, man. So Michael Richards has a great reading when Elaine comes back and she's like, where's my armoire? <laughs> and he goes, it was stolen. Street toughs. They robbed me. <laughs> it's just very all short declarative sentences, partial sentences. They show up again in a later episode when Kramer refuses to wear an AIDS ribbon on the AIDS walk. And they turn around. They're like, hey, Bob, Ray, this guy refuses to wear a ribbon. Yeah. And the camera zooms in on them as they turn around and goes, Who? Who doesn't want to wear the ribbon? It's to re- and like immediately I'm supposed to know like, oh, of course, <laughs> these gay street <laughs> toughs. Everywhere. They are played up as gay. At least Bob is very, I mean, I think they're both like playing it yeah. up. But it's so ludicrous to me. I've already said this, but it is so ludicrous to me that I can't even get upset. They're, they're absurd. really into the, they're absurd this beautiful armoire. Yeah. It's handmade. I just imagine them going antiquing and just taking things because they're really intimidating <laughs> and just I really I like I want to watch that show too. I really do. We're taking the armoire. Don't do accents. We're taking the armoire and there's nothing that you can do about it. And I do love that Jerry and Kramer run away like children again when they are confronted. The minute that there's any like pushback from Bob and Ray, they just sort of they're like, are you talking to him or are you talking to me? Well, you were talking to one of us, so it must be someone here. And Kramer goes, I was just talking sort of to everybody. And then he looks to Jerry and they just both run, run away, away full speed in the other direction. It's great. We also get one of my favorite deliveries. I don't know if he does this a lot because it's the only time we see it in the episodes that we watch. But I do definitely remember this delivery, which is George saying, ah, <laughs> <laughs> I can't even do it. The pact. This is the pact. This is the season where at the beginning of the season, they decided that they are not men, that they need to settle down. And George, of course, mm. proposes to Susan and she accepts and Jerry oh, meets a girl yeah. and he likes her a lot. And then, you know, they break up. Yeah, we didn't and mention then, that. This is our first appearance of Susan. Yes. George uses Susan, essentially, to sort of get back at Jerry and decides to be super affectionate with Susan in the same fashion to get on Jerry's nerves. But Jerry, of course, then starts, they both start making out in the booth at the cafe to like one up each other. It's weird. But of course, Susan is like, I'm really proud of you for being able to be so affectionate in public. I think this is a really great turning point in our relationship. And I'm like, turning point? You're you're engaged. <laughs> <laughs> she it's loves deranged. it. Yeah. That's really funny. 
Okay, yeah, we mentioned this before, but so <laughs> Kramer gets the soup Nazi and Kramer are friends because he doesn't call him the soup Nazi. He's a misunderstood genius. Yeah, and he doesn't know that he's, that Kramer is talking about Elaine, the lady he banned for a year. And he's like, I have an armoire in my basement. Come take it. It's yours. And so he gives the armoire to Elaine and it's very lovely. It's actually kind of sweet. This whole thing is kind of sweet. He's actually... Lauren mentioned this. She's like, you know, I always thought of him as like this crazy neighbor and and he is, but he's also like, he's trying to be a good friend to them. Like as uh-huh. much as he can, like he volunteers to go to the airport. He babysits the armoire. He gets a new armoire for, like, he's like trying to be sweet. He's just crazy. No, I mean, I, I will want to touch on that when we get to the finale, because yeah. I think there is like a genuine sweetness to Kramer. Yeah. That is very, like he's a mensch. Like he's a really good guy. He's yeah. always there to help out. And sometimes he needs you to help out with his birds that he's going to be watching. But otherwise, I mean, he is trying to be a good friend. When I think the like the trope and the thing that people remember, which is also true of him, is that just him busting into Jerry's apartment all the time and taking his food all the time. Mm-hmm. We also get one mention in the series. I remember where like it was it like they do a flashback of Jerry saying, "Yeah, whatever you want." Like yeah, what's being, mine is yours. Just being a nice, and so that's literally where all and that Kramer's comes from. like, "Oh, I couldn't. I don't want to impose." And it's like, no. Anyway, so Kramer gives Elaine the armoire, and she does the get out shove, but like so hard that he falls through like her closet doors. And he's on the ground, and they're still talking, just like it's completely <laughs> normal. They don't acknowledge it. He's fallen completely to the ground. It's for one very sitcommy, but two also very funny. I mean. Michael Richards is really good at falling. He's very good at physical comedy. And it can feel sometimes very hokey and put upon. But sometimes when it hits, it really does work. I do get, I'm very, bit of a priss. So I don't like getting hurt. And sometimes when I watch Michael Richards, like doing these things to his body, like when he slid down the baggage claim carousel, I was very concerned for his shins. Like he's going to hit that metal thing. Yeah, it makes me very uncomfortable. Two more things I want to mention. First off, the fact that people are ordering their soup to go. I'm like, what's the other option? There are literally fucking no tables in this place. Like, what's, what are you going to stand by the counter? Elaine also gets a good, when she, when the landlord has shut her down and says, you can't move in on Sundays. And then she says, well, you're just going to, she turns to the guy who had delivered the armoire. And she's like, well, you're just going to have to hold this for me. He's like, I'm a curb guy. I don't have layaway. (laughs) guy on the street. (laughs) I'm a guy on the street. And then he like starts walking away and Elaine does this thing where she's like, please don't go. Please don't walk away. Like, she's so half-hearted, like, as he's leaving, just, please don't. Please don't do that. Please don't go. She has laugh. also some really good physical comedy when she has the recipes, and we cut to the soup Nazi, and, and someone's ordering, <laughs> and they order, and then as they slide away, we see her just, like, leaning against the sill with the recipes and fanning her herself fanning with the herself. recipes <laughs> she comes up because part of it also really good physical comedy when she orders she's she's been like <laughs> pooping the the rules because there's like these very specific rules of how you're supposed to order and she's like whatever it's soup i'm leaving with soup and so she like really flouts it and just like okay let's see bah, bah, bah. she like yeah she slams her hands on the metal like thing and then mocks she's like is that lima bean he's like yes <laughs> And she's like, not a fan. (laughs) Just complete, like, honestly, the soup Nazi is being more reasonable with her than anyone else in the fucking line. He gives her a lot of leeway that he hasn't given to other people, but she pushes it too far. There's also a second encounter with 
her and the soup Nazi where she goes to thank him for the armor when she finds out it's his, but before she finds out there are his recipes inside. And she says, Kramer delivered the armoire. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And he says, if I'd known it was for you, I would have chopped it up and burned it <laughs> instead of giving it to her. <laughs> just absolutely deranged people. It's <sighs> great. It's the power of soup. Have you ever had a soup as good as this soup? <laughs> well, I've never had mulligatani, so yeah, there's still either. a chance. But I'm fine with soup. Yeah, I'm the same. But it never feels like a meal, yeah. much, which is a similar conversation that Banya and Jerry have in an episode we didn't watch. Soup's not a meal. Soup's the meal. You wanted to have dinner. This is it. This is dinner. It's a good episode if you want to ever look it up. Oh, yeah. I'll be watching all of Seinfeld now. But I'm not, a, I'm, not a big, I'm not a big soup guy. I don't hate soup. I have nothing against soup. Sometimes we have soup. But, you know, when we have soup for dinner... Around 7.45, I'm you know, creeping the around the kitchen looking for something. You know, the listening right now. You know, you don't have to. <laughs> Look, you know, some of my best friends are soup. Butternut squash. We were roommates together. All right, your next episode. I've done a lot for the soup community. I feel like, if, you know, I've donated money, but I can't just be, you know, hanging out with soup all the time. Don't get all up in my face with the soup. <laughs> Which one's next? Because I, I missed the little kicks and had to go back to it. Is it next or is the rye no, next? the rye next. Oh, this... Now, we, when we were debating what episodes we watched, yeah. the rye was a late incomer for me, where I was like, oh, wait, hold on. I know I sent you the list, but... Damon, pick five episodes. Here are the eight we watched. <laughs> <laughs> but when I watched the rye, I'm so glad we included this, because this has... This is a real heavy hitter episode. This is possibly... I mean, it's not my favorite episode, but I would possibly... Like, if I had to pick one episode to put in the Smithsonian, this would be <laughs> really? the one. Okay. It's a really great episode where everyone is doing the most... Insane things. Do you want to recap it for us? Yeah. The Rye, Season 7, Episode 11. Elaine is dating a jazz saxophonist who doesn't... Not unlike Kenny G. Who doesn't go down on her. He tries once, and then he can't play the saxophone anymore. <laughs> Tries too hard, I guess. George and his parents have dinner with Susan and the in-laws. They bring a marble rye, but they take it with them when they leave. George then concocts a plan to sneak the rye back into their apartment. It does not go well. Yeah, Susan's family doesn't put the rye out. It seems yeah. like it was an oversight. Frank and Estelle take it as a slight. Because they made a special trip to get the best rye. Yeah, It's out of our way, to quote Estelle. I love Frank and Estelle Costanza yes. so much. Now, allow me to explain my history. I had two sets of grandparents. One set was very, you know, you just didn't want to keep weapons in the house. Like they, you could tell like, mm, they were ready for someone to just get lost. They didn't care for, it didn't feel like there was a lot of love lost there. Or there was a lot of love lost there. I don't know what that phrase really means. So when I see Frank and Estelle, I am taken back to my own grandparents, who I loved very much, and I thought were hysterical because they were constantly yelling at each other. You know, one would say, Russell, bring the laundry up when you come to bed. And Russell would say, your ass sucks butterballs. I don't know what that means. I don't know what your ass sucks butterballs means. I don't know what a butterball is outside of a turkey company. But man, did I love those two angry people. So that Frank and Estelle true. take me a little bit back. Also, I have a thing in sitcoms where married couples do seem to hate each other. 
when you do get a glimpse that they actually do like each other. And I think for the first time and only time in Seinfeld history, Estelle agrees with Frank at some point during this episode. <laughs> the whole scene when they're leaving and George discovers that they've taken the marble rye back with them yeah. is a great Frank and Estelle moment because it is so rare. You know, I feel like we're getting all over the place, but I just wanted to say I love Frank and Estelle. I think this is our first episode that we watched where they are like sort of front and center. I like them a lot, although I think this is where I think they can lo- lose some people because of the shouting. It does <laughs> like the shouting? it does take like a similar dynamic that already exists in the show and like really amps it up another level. And it doesn't get on my nerves, but I can see it. You know what I mean? Like I can see how that would happen. It's just like, it's a lot of shouting. It's a lot of- So much shouting. A lot of unreasonable shouting. You know what I mean? Over unreasonable things usually. But I've said it before on the show. You know what I love? What always never ceases to make me laugh? People shouting. Unreasonable shouting. Yeah. People talking quietly and then suddenly talking loudly. Makes me laugh. He also says, talking about a movie, I like to go in fresh. (laughs) That is one that I like to quote a lot. When George just says, hey, anybody see Firestorm? Because they're already, it's already awkward. So George yeah. changes the subject to one of the many fake movies of Seinfeld. And then he says, anyone see Firestorm? And Susan's dad is like, hell of a picture. And he talks about like a helicopter exploding. And <laughs> Frank screams, ah, 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 I haven't seen it yet. And the then Susan's dad starts screaming as well and says, it has nothing to do with the plot. And he's like, still, still, I like to go in fresh. <laughs> I just like people screaming things like it has nothing to do with the plot. Such a low stay <laughs> sentence screamed at the top of your lungs. <laughs> I think I want to work that one more into my vocabulary. And also <laughs> they're mad because the Rosses didn't, don't put out dessert of any kind, specifically cake. There's like, who doesn't serve cake? Like, I love that. Like, I think it is somewhat reasonable to at least be surprised that there is no dessert or talk of dessert. But they specifically say cake all the time. And then he says, would it kill them to put out a piece of pound cake? Something. I literally say, we're sitting there like idiots, drinking coffee without a piece of cake. Estelle said, I should say it like Estelle, we're sitting there like idiots, (laughs) drinking coffee without a piece of cake. And that is when they agree with each other is like, George says something like, so what? They didn't put out cake. And Estelle goes, your father is absolutely right. We're sitting there like idiots drinking coffee without a piece of cake. It's impolite, Estelle adds. And then Frank goes, it's not impolite. It's stupid. That's what it is. You got to be stupid to do a thing like that. (laughs) Just screaming. I love it. I let it wash over me. (laughs) I like they're in the back end at Monk's. Jerry and George are talking. (laughs) He says, Jerry's responding to the marble rye situation. He's George is trying to concoct this plan to get it back. <laughs> he's sipping coffee, Jerry, and goes, it's a bad situation. <laughs> Just like the way he squints and says it. It's very good. And George has a similar thing to me, which is like, well, now there's this tension between the Rosses and the Costanzas, so I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to keep them separate all the time from here on out. And that's why he concocts this plan to steal a marble or to get a marble rye and sneak it into the Ross's apartment. He doesn't know. They've already noticed that the bread is missing. Yeah. They're all very suspicious, is what he says. So let's talk about cunnilingus, shall we? Or do you want to talk about the rye some more? Jerry steals, you know, accosts a woman on the street. 
an old lady that's in line of heart gets the mask. Who plays a lot into later episodes. She comes back twice in the finale and in another episode when Jerry's dad is trying to get elected head of the retirement board. Apparently she also spends time in Florida Ah. and she recognizes Jerry and then ruins it for Morty. Yeah. My favorite thing is see she's in front of him in line and she gets the last marble rye. He tries to like buy it from her, tries to like pay more for it. She won't do it. Eventually $50. He, just, he goes up to $50 for a marble rye. steals it from him and she says, he stole my marble rye. <laughs> help, help. Shut up, you old bag. Yeah. Okay. Conolingus. Sure. John Germain played by Jeff Yeager. I think his name is. He, he I recognize him from My Fellow Americans. He's the oh, Secret Service okay. agent who saves them at the end. Okay. I mean, I haven't seen My Fellow Americans, but- Wow. Spoiler. I do know that they do march in a gay pride parade in that yeah, one. He's, and he meets them there, and they befriend him. And then later it turns out he's a Secret Service agent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good, good job, John Yeager. Jeff. Jeff Yeager, of course. This is another pretty surprising, kind of like in the same vein of the contest where, you know, I can't remember any other TV show talking about cunnilingus in this way. I know it's a thing that some straight men will not do it. Yes. But I always took it as a very selfish thing. Like, I mean, I think a few years ago, DJ Khaled said in an interview that he doesn't do it because he likes to feel like a king. And so he can't bow down to his woman in that way. Gross. Go to hell. And I just don't, maybe it's because I'm a gay man. I'm just like, what are you talking about? What? Do you just go straight into it? Just like, just boom, we're doing this now. To quote Liz Lemon, you guys start with that? I think it's just, you know, it's a maturity thing. Like you realize that over time, that if you're a man who matures, you realize that this is... A giving lover, you might want to say. This is a, a give and take. We're, we're in this together. It's not just I'm seeking to accomplish something. You know what I mean? I'm trying to talk about it like they would in the show. And so I think some people never learn. And some people expect, you know, blowjobs even though they don't, which is, that's messed up. That is insane to me. That's insane to me. And some, also some people, you know, couples don't always communicate very well about what they want. So mm. I think there's there's some blame to go around there. But yeah, it's it's all about, you know. So you're blaming the victim. Got it. Well, yes. You're blaming Elaine. It's Elaine's fault because <laughs> she didn't say specifically, I would like you to perform kind of That's true. And I'm not saying it wouldn't be nice. <laughs> She's playing coy about it. But then, yeah, he... I hope that your eventual question is, would you be able to play saxophone if you performed killings? And to be honest, I don't know. I don't play saxophone. <laughs> I came yeah, well, here she to does give say to him. and play saxophone, and I'm all out of saxophones. <laughs> she does say to him oh, after the scene where presumably he does go down on her finally, that he next time he doesn't have to try so hard. And he looks very disheveled and sad. Yeah. If he was like, so it sounds like he really, you know, gave yeah. himself lockjaw or something. Yeah, it's not like a hungry, hungry hippo situation. So I oh, think God. he went a little crazy. It's not a literal thing, eating her out. You just <laughs> have to just be chill, man. Yeah, it's not, which makes sense if he didn't do it, that he wouldn't, you know, have perfected his technique yet. You know, so he went with the Pac Man, which is not a good, <laughs> a good plan. If someone actually came up to me and said, "No, actually, the Pac Man is a great cunnilingus technique," I'd be like, "Yeah, okay." That also makes sense. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> I have no idea. All right. You want to do the next one? Yeah, let's go ahead. Oh, wait. Another line that I often quote a lot where 
There's a subplot with John Germain's story where Jerry encounters one of his background musicians. His keyboardist, and, I think. Uh, yeah, his pianist, who will not help with the groceries because his hands are his life. <laughs> I've never used that line in my life, but I'm going to start. I'm like, oh, I wish I had something that I did. Oh, I draw. I can say that now. Sorry, Tyler. You're really going to have to pull all these things in. But Jerry says to him that, oh, I hear him and Elaine, John Germain and Elaine are getting pretty hot and heavy. And it comes back to Elaine that he said this and... She's mortified that he would say that. She's like, I don't want him to think we're, I think we're hot and heavy when we're, he thinks we're not hot and heavy. And then she says, I'm trying to lure a tiny squirrel over to me. I don't want to make any big sudden gestures. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. The next episode we watch is The Little Kicks, season eight, episode four. This is another one that is quite jam-packed with Seinfeld things yeah. that I yeah. genuinely love. All of my notes here are quotes, pretty much. You want to recap this one? Yes, this is the little kicks in what was? What did you say the episode was? Season, season eight. Season eight. Season eight, season eight. At this point, Elaine is the head of the Peterman catalog. Jay Peterman has absconded to the jungles of Asia for some reason. So Elaine, there was another one I had to swallow. <laughs> so Elaine is in charge, and she's very paranoid that people don't respect her, and she's throwing a party for her employees. George weasels his way in. According to Jerry, he's going to show up anyway, so you might as well invite him. He does that by, not to ruin your recap, but he does that by saying, he's like, food, drink, George. (laughs) (laughs) So he does weasel his way in, and, you know, during a toast, you know, the music starts after her toast, and she's like, ooh, we're dancing. Who else wants to dance? Who's going to get on the dance floor? And no one really does. She's like, you want me to get it started? All phrases I've never heard before in my life in regard to getting people dancing. And she starts dancing. And again, Julia Dreyfus is a really great physical comedian, and she does this dance where, I guess, if I have to describe it, imagine that you're taking one of those Scientology stress tests and you have your hands around the metal poles. You pull them in real tight to your body, put your thumbs up, and you sort of are doing that. So sort of dad dance a little bit. But then there's this arrhythmic leg movement where you kick at the terminus of your kick outward. You twist your foot inward. And you do that to no discernible beat whatsoever. And you want to sort of hold your head back as well. So you're sort of swaying and kicking. I can't do it because I'm always scared I'm going to twist my ankle. I don't know how she did it, but her foot twists at a very irregular shape. Anyway, everyone in her office sees this and is mocking her. But she thinks that what's happened is that George, being at the party, has like... Poisoned them. Infected the bloodstream and turned everyone against her. So she tells one of her assistants that George was actually flirting with that you need to stay away from George. He's a bad seed. He's a terrible seed. He's one of the worst seeds I've ever seen. And the woman asks, aren't you two close friends? And she says, oh yeah, we're good friends. (laughs) It's one of my favorite lines. And uh, so that then turns this woman on to George. Like she's now into George because he's the bad boy. So she starts surreptitiously seeing George on the side and it turns to this dynamic where he is the bad boy in high school and Elaine is the mom who's trying to keep her daughter away from him. And so So she's always like interrupting their dates and is like, you stay away from her and pulling the girl uh, into a cab to take her back to the office. It's insane. We also get Jerry gets advanced screening tickets to a movie called Death Blow, another great fake Seinfeld movie. I forgot about this whole storyline. And Kramer invites his 
very tangential friend, Brody, to come with them, and they find out that Brody is a bootlegger. He films the movie in the theater to sell on the streets. But Brody gets a tummy ache from all the candy he was eating during filming. Eats a feed bag of candy. Yeah, maybe if he hadn't licked his fingers before he he had uh, started reaching into the feed bag, they could all have gotten some. But he forces Kramer to take him home, and that means that Jerry has to finish filming the movie. Jerry is scared now because he thought he would have done a bad job, but it turns out he does a fantastic job, and he's like got a preternatural ability to, you know, bootleg films. And so the guy wants him to bootleg this foreign film called Cry Cry Again. The point is, like, Jerry takes it too far. He tries to get Kramer to do it. Kramer does a terrible job. And then Jerry's like, I've got to fix what you've done. We finally confess to, to Elaine that she cannot dance. And so she films herself dancing over the recording of Cry Cry Again, which is then delivered to Brody. And Jerry and Kramer try and play it off. That's this very artsy <laughs> ending to the film. Eventually, Elaine apologizes to George, which, of course, ruins his bad boy image And then to get it back, George decides that he's going to become a movie bootlegger. He immediately gets arrested because he's not good at things. And Elaine has to pick up her co-worker from the police station. I don't know why Elaine has to do it, but it continues this mothering attitude. And of course, Frank Costanza arrives to pick up George. Where's my boy? I was reading a periodical when I get this call. And it ends in not only a great scene between Elaine and Jerry Stiller, But one of the all-time best blooper reels of all time, I highly recommend someone, you know, if you're listening to to watch the bloopers from this, because first off, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is notorious for breaking in uh, recording, which, like, she cannot stop getting the giggles out. And of course, when Jerry Stiller is there screaming at her, she is absolutely ruined. She can't stop laughing during this whole thing. And it's absolutely one of the greatest things ever filmed pales in comparison to the actual scene or the actual scene pales in comparison to the blue yeah, reel. Yeah. But it's also one of the few times we actually get Elaine and Frank interacting. But later we see animosity between them in later episodes where he just calls her woman. He does not, he does not like Elaine after that. Anyway, most of my lines from this are also jokes, but that's yeah. also true of every other episode we've done. The little kicks is the, the actual dancing is amazing, as I said during our recap. It's absolutely wild. I love the dynamic between her and George, her mistaking that George is ruining her life, but it's actually everyone, you know, making fun of her. She's a bad worker, is the vibe we get. Yeah, she's not a good boss. That she's not a good boss, especially from this episode. She says that she works her people hard and... Now she's going to, you know, give them this party. But then when George introduces himself to this woman as a friend of Elaine's, the woman immediately says, excuse me, and walks away. She, like, does not like Elaine either. Yeah. Yeah, What else did you like in in these little kicks? In the beginning of the entire episode, Jerry and Kramer are walking down the street and they're talking about which side of the street to walk on. It's really inconsequential, but... Yeah, which side of the sidewalk should you be on the street side or on the the building side? Yeah, and Kramer says... Like, if you're walking on that side, you, you know, it jumps the curb and whack, you've had your last egg sandwich. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know why that that tickled me. George describes, I think it was George, describes it, her dance is more like a full body dry heave set to music. That's excellent. I do like when George comes back and Jerry's asking, comes back to Jerry's apartment and Jerry says, how was the party last night? And he's like, well, you missed one little bit of ed- entertainment. You ever seen Elaine dance? And like Jerry with his back to the camera just freezes in place and then turns and says, 
Elaine danced. He says, it's more like a full body dry heave. Yeah. And then Jerry goes, with the thumbs and the little kicks. Yeah. And then we get a flashback. We actually get a very funny flashback, yeah. kind of meta flashback where Elaine and, and Jerry are walking down the street, but they are in their like season two outfits. So Jerry's wearing this huge oversized like button up shirt that's tucked in and creating the weird shelf when he yeah. tucks it into his black jeans. And Elaine is wearing like sort of this- The prairie dress kind of vibe. Prairie yeah. dress that she would always wear. And she had her has her wall of hair and her fucking backpack purse. It's really great that they were self-aware enough to be like, this is what you two fuckers look like you yeah. know, just merely five years ago. Yeah. And it shows Elaine dancing to like a street band, some and buskers, they're like, and they're all, everyone in the crowd is visibly disturbed by her, <laughs> by her dancing. Yeah. There's a good line between Brody and Kramer. He's like, may I use your phone? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's under the couch, which is, <laughs> it's a very like throwaway thing, but I thought that was funny. And also Kramer, always shooting straight, that Kramer. Elaine's like, I don't, it's my, my like. Yeah, it's I'll, dancing. Yeah, I'm, I'm dancing. And he goes, no, that ain't dancing, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a physical repulsion to her dancing. Where yeah. He just sort of, sort of smacks his head a little bit. It's a good episode. I want to say like me and Adam, who also loves Seinfeld and specifically Julia Louis-Dreyfus, we have a gif whenever we're sort of sniping at each other as we are wont to do. If you want to sort of bring the tension down a little bit, I will send him a gif of, oh yeah, we're good friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. That's all I got for that one because it's all just basically the jokes, which like, I, just watch the episode. some things that made me laugh really hard in this episode, which is when Brody first reveals like he is not a man to be trifled with. He's got a gun. Yeah. He's got a gun. And Kramer says, no, he's just joking around. Jerry's a joke maker. Tell him, Jerry. And Jerry just turns and goes, I'm a joke maker. <laughs> Made me laugh heartily. <laughs> and then he says, Kramer, you forced me to get this ticket. He forces me to bootleg the film at gunpoint. And then Kramer goes, he's quite a character. And Jerry's now, at this point, he's concerned that he's not, he's not done a good job. And Kramer says, it's your first time. He'll understand. He's like, people with guns don't understand. That's why people get guns. Too many misunderstandings. Which is what I think of when people want to get guns. And also when they're handing over Kramer's version of Cry Cry Again, and they're trying to justify this weird cut, jump cut to Elaine dancing that she filmed herself. He goes, uh, yeah, it, it ends with the lone dancer who appears to be injured. And Kramer goes, it's a disturbing image. And also, finally, I just want to say, Elaine telling Frank Costanza that she'd drop him like a bag of dirt never fails to <laughs> drop you like face. a bag of You saying, you want a piece you of me? a piece of me? And Frank, I just want to talk about Jerry Stiller. He has such an odd physiology to him, and he moves his body parts in ways that you would think more of a marionette would move than a human being. And he, so his arms sort of come up first. When he's saying, do you want a piece of me, rather than just like touching his chest, his arms sort of come up parallel to his body. It's and also then his he like touches, coat. It's like the shoulder pads he's or wearing, Yeah, he's wearing this sort of leisure suit, like almost like an army jacket, but like in a 70s style. And he like touches his chest from above rather than like from the sides. It's an odd move. But they've talked about how Jerry Stiller delivers his lines he delivers it, in, as one character in a later episode says, he has a very halting way of speaking. It's because Jerry Stiller can't remember the lines, and so they sort of come to him in waves. But it creates this dynamic where he's just always sort of like, ah, uh, he's just yeah. waiting for the words to come to him. It's absolutely great. 
I remember when I fell in love with Frank and Estelle Costanza is when George is unemployed and he finally moves back in with them. And there's a great scene where they're at a, like a family restaurant and Estelle and Frank are flanking George. And they're both having conversations with George, but they are not having conversations with each other. So Estelle is talking to George about getting a job at the post office. And Frank is talking about how when he was young, he had a silver dollar collection. And they're both just like talking <laughs> over each other. And George is not responding to either of them, which I love. I tell you, I love them both. Rest in power, you two. Yeah. That blooper reel, which is like one of the only ones that I think I've, I've seen because we didn't watch. Yeah, I know when... When we were roommates, you would watch that and you were like, I think you were probably like, you have to watch this. Because <laughs> it's mostly, most of the bloopers are people breaking and Michael Richards getting annoyed. <laughs> because Yeah, Michael Richards doesn't seem like a fun person to uh, act with because he does not like people breaking. Yeah. He's very serious about his craft, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is like, it's a comedy show and these people are having fun and you are not, which right. is unfortunate. I think part of it is that because a lot of his parts were more physical, yeah. I can understand that he would be like, I have to do this six times if you keep laughing yeah. like this. I have to fall down again. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that bit of, of those two, <laughs> basically it's just him doing his lines weirdly every time and her breaking every time. Mm -hmm. Corpsing, as they say. Yeah. Carol Burnett. I was finally watching the non-porn version of the Carol Burnett show, and I learned about this thing called breaking, to quote Tracy Jordan. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, do you want to move on to the finale? Oh, I, first off, just one more thing. I want to say, how could I possibly interfere, says George. And Jerry says, isn't that what Jack Ruby said? <laughs> Wait, don't we have the Susie? What? Did you watch the Susie? No. Oh, How okay, many episodes did you have on this list? <laughs> Maybe that's why I got confused about the little kicks. I watched the Susie. Oh, no. It's a good episode where Elaine one, finds out one of her co-workers thinks her name is Susie. And I just want to say one thing about it, because you got to talk about the contest. Yeah. There's a great scene where Peterman, who of course knows Elaine's name is Elaine, invites Elaine, Susie, and this, this co-worker who doesn't know Elaine's name to have a meeting to sort everything out. And so Elaine comes to the meeting, this other coworker arrives to the meeting, and Peterman arrives to the meeting. And they do a, it's a fantastic job because no names are ever mentioned. And they're waiting for this third person to arrive. And Peterman just goes, hold on, we're still one short. And Elaine's like, I want to talk about that. We don't need to name names or point fingers or name names. <laughs> you have a problem with her. I have problems with you. And she keeps pointing to different people and pointing to an empty chair. And <laughs> one of my favorite parts is the coworker is like, I thought I was part of the problem. And Elaine goes, you are a huge part of the problem. <laughs> but in order, when we have an Elaine and Susie problem, who best to solve an Elaine and Susie problem? Elaine and Susie, Susie and Elaine. And uh, she gets out of it without having to declare that she is either Susie or Elaine. And it's just amazing. And again, <laughs> Julie Louis-Dreyfus should be enshrined, should be encased in ivory, not encased in ivory, you encase people in amber, and like placed in a museum for everyone to enjoy for all time to come. She'll die, but we'll still have her. Yeah. She can't live the rest of her life in peace. <laughs> so we watched the finale. Yes. So here we go. So... A lot of this is a clip show, so the actual recap is not that crazy. I didn't write this down, but George and Jerry get an, a call back from NBC. They've in episodes that we did not watch. They had, you know, we're working on TV show, much like the show Seinfeld. Very meta. Yeah, it's all very meta. We're all very pleased down here. I can tell you. There's a new president of something at NBC, and he brings them back, <laughs> and he's like, "I want to make this TV show." They're very excited. Jerry gets use of 
the uh, private jet to go anywhere, and they all decide they're going to Paris. But on the way to Paris, the plane has some mechanical malfunctions. They land in Massachusetts, this little tiny town. They're just walking around, killing time while they fix the plane, and they see this guy get mugged. And while he's getting mugged, his car was stolen and mugged. Kramer is It's an umbrella. Mugging umbrella and cars and, you know, money can be under that umbrella. We gotta end this show. We gotta get it. Kramer's also filming, so there's evidence of them making fun of the... He's calling him fat because he's a bigger guy, and there's a good Samaritan law in this town, and so they're arrested and put on trial for being awful people that did not help this man, and it's not just... They're showing that it's a pattern behavior, so they bring in like almost every side character that ever occurred in the entire series, and they show clips of how they were awful people to them, and then they're convicted. <laughs> they're in jail at the end. They're sent to jail for a year. For a year. And then they end it talking about the the button on George's shirt, just like in the beginning of the show. Up there, no man's land. I think there was a lot at the time. There was a lot of dialogue. There was a lot of conversations about this because, you know, Seinfeld's like the biggest show in the world. And it was an event. It was, it was a thing. A big event. It was a two parter. It was like an hour long when you put them together. And they, it's kind of a meh ending. It's basically a clip show, which. That kind of makes sense, but there was also clip shows right before it to like yeah, celebrate. Yeah, they put a like a, a retrospective like show before it, and then they had this sh- this episode that involves a lot of clips. Yeah, I was thinking I didn't watch the clip show, but right. it is weird that yeah, like surely you guys were talking like while NBC was making this retrospective episode, you you probably you know told them like hey we're gonna have a lot of these clips in our episode yeah. too, and NBC's like we're selling uh, commercials for a million dollars for a thirty second spot, so don't worry about it. We got it. It also made me realize we didn't watch any episodes with Putty, which is a real shame. That is a real, real, real shame. And you know some of the clips we you know were from episodes we hadn't watched, so that was nice uh, to see you know George pushing old women and children and clowns out of the way when he thinks there's a fire from that episode. But mostly there's not a lot of funny bits that aren't from previous episodes, which kind of makes some sense, except for it's not a very serious episode either. So it's just like a kind of, if it didn't have all these clips of good episodes, and if it weren't the last episode, you would just put it in the bank of forgettable episodes. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. not. And so it's kind of a, I can see why people were upset. It's, I think their idea was sound. I think their execution was poor, basically. That's my not that you were asking my, my verdict on this one episode. Well, I mean, it is the premise of the podcast, so I mean, I think it's fine. It was in the prompt. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I think at the time, I remember being disappointed by it. And I think the older I get, and the more I see it, and the more I realize, like, Seinfeld still exists. Like, it doesn't make these other episodes leave. It's not like we only get one episode of Seinfeld forever. It is a disappointing episode. There's part of me that wonders, if you could end a show as low stakes as Seinfeld is... I mean, I think I've heard Larry David, his first suggestion was like, let's just do a normal episode. Yeah. And there's part of me that's like, that actually seems more in spirit with Seinfeld than trying to do a momentous episode. what Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers did. They just stopped making episodes. (laughs) It's kind of what Larry David does on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's like, I'll do it if I want to. Yeah. I'll get back to you, HBO. I've got your number. Don't worry about it. 
I think it's a cleverer episode than it is a funny episode. I think it's trying to do something a little bit meta. It's kind of a tr- purposefully trolly episode, I think. I think there are a lot of these false starts at the beginning of it, which is trying to sort of set you up for, we're not going to do a normal finale episode. I think you get Kramer with the prophecy at the very beginning where he's like, there's something in the air this morning, huh? There's something different out there. And then we get, of course, like, they sort of go through these sort of finale tropes where, you know, George and Jerry get the pilot deal, like NBC's going to go through like with it, and they're going to move to California. And so there's this like idea like, oh, we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to move away, and that's going to be the the terminus of this show. And then, you know, then they get the charter plane as a sort of apology for taking so long to greenlight the, the pilot. And then you're like, oh, we're going to have a big episode in another country. And then you don't get that. Then you get this death threat where the plane is going down. You're like, oh my God, they're going to kill them. And then you, during that, you get Elaine and Jerry sort of almost confessing their love for each other. And there's all these sort of false starts. And then it goes into this trial episode, which essentially works as a, a clip show, like you said. And... I do appreciate, I think, the first half of it more than I appreciate the last half, because the first half, while also still not funny, still feels a little bit in the spirit of Seinfeld, of less, like a little bit like twisting, trolling the bit. expectations yeah. that have been put upon them. But yeah, th- there's just a lot in this episode that just doesn't feel like Seinfeld. Like a lot of like, and you're sort of reminded in this episode of these one-off characters that come in and they leave or they become like semi-regulars like Putty and, and Babu Bot and all the side characters that are sort of introduced in this, like the DA and the cops and Geraldo Rivera, all play it like super straight. Yeah. And I think purposefully, what I noticed watching it this time is that I feel like they're all playing it super straight, almost to play up how normal this, I think it's Latham, Massachusetts, is versus the wacky world of Seinfeld's New York. But again, like there's a moment where the cop is like, well, you know, we have, he was explaining the Good Samaritan law that they were arrested under, and he like, evokes like Princess Diana's death. And he's like, I remember they, you know, it's modeled after the one in France after, you know, Princess Diana died and all those people were just taking pictures. And I was like, what a weird thing. Like, I can't imagine any episode episode. of Seinfeld episode, like evoking the tragic death of Princess Diana. (laughs) It's just so weird. And then Geraldo Rivera's parts are all, they're all played straight, except for the part where he says, where the field reporters like, and uh, Mrs. Bennis and Mr. Seinfeld have this will they, won't they thing. And Geraldo says, maybe they'll end up getting married and stares into the camera. And I'm like, that part of the the finale is over now. Not that I can blame you, Geraldo Rivera. It's not like you're actually reporting on this. Right. I do want to say, like we alluded to with Kramer earlier, the weird thing is like this moment where they get arrested, where they see John Panette is, is a comedian and he's playing the the guy who's getting mugged and they just sort of stand around and mock him. Like it doesn't feel like, I mean, it's certainly not ethically right, but it doesn't feel right for these characters. It doesn't feel like the Jerry, George and Elaine like that I know would do this. And it especially feels weird with Kramer where it doesn't feel like Kramer would do that at yeah. all. Yeah. And I don't know, it, it always sort of rubs me the wrong way because I feel like this, the thing I like about Seinfeld over things that sort of lean into the terribleness of their characters, like like we mentioned in the introduction, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yeah. is that their terribleness is very relatable. It's sort of yeah. 
in seeing them being terrible, seeing, you know, George flee from a fire. It's neuroses-based. Yeah, it's all neuroses, and it's like, I can kind of see myself doing that. Or Jerry, like, getting out of relationships because his girlfriend eats her peas one at a time. Like, this this all seems, like, very low stakes, but also, like, kind of neurotic relatableness. Whereas them making fun of a fat guy for being mugged and mocking him for being fat. It's very superficial. It seems like very forced thing. Now, on the other hand, I feel like the show is trying to do this thing where the show about nothing, they get arrested for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it goes into that thing where I think the finale is more clever than it is funny. Like that's clever, but is it really that funny? for the show that is remarkably funny. Like we have been probably to the detriment of our listeners quoting this more than we've actually been <laughs> reviewing it. Although I do want to point out some things because people shit on the finale a lot. George saying, I knew that God wouldn't let me be successful as the plane is going down is also something I would probably say, even as an atheist, I would say, I knew it. I knew he wouldn't <laughs> let this happen. I also appreciate that Estelle and Frank at their own moment. And Estelle made me laugh out loud when she when George is saying, it's a show about nothing. And she goes, nothing, please. The whole thing sounds pretty stupid to me. <laughs> you people with the cheese, it never ends. That was another line that when Jackie Charles gets called in, he apparently does not like cheese. And when someone serves him a sandwich with cheese, he's like, you people with the cheese, it never ends. <laughs> it made me laugh because it's so, st- what are you talking about? We did get a glimpse of Newman in Soup Nazi, but that was the- we didn't see yes. not Newman any Newman episodes. And then we do get a little bit of, Newman and he gets a very, very good monologue. A very super villain esque yeah. moment. Also, sort of a finale trope where he's like, Yeah, one day the, your world will come crashing down and I'll be there in all my glory laughing. It's deranged. And Wayne Knight, of course, like makes a meal out of it. It's, yeah. it's a great moment. That's all I have to say about the film. Do you have anything else before we go to the verdict? We get a glimpse of all these one-off characters, but one of my favorites in an episode that we didn't cover is Detective Bookman, the library detective, <laughs> played by Philip Baker Hall, a great character actor who also has passed away somewhat recently. In his episode that he's introduced, he plays it like very noir, like he's always talking with short, quippy answers. And you can tell like Jerry cannot keep a straight face because this is like, I think it's season three or season four. You can tell like every take of Jerry is him like finally calming down from laughing and like sort of you can see his mouth sort of closing from having been laughing just seconds earlier. But in his testimony to the court, the, you know, he's talking about how Jerry had a book out for 25 years and Bookman says, we don't call him delinquent after that long. And the DA says, what do you call them? And he goes, criminals. Just as quick as possible. Uh, It's just a book. It's deranged. Oh, and Susan's father buys a gun. That's probably the darkest moment in the finale, is that Susan's father buys a gun to kill George. To kill George, because they think he murdered Susan. They're pretty sure. I would describe it as restrained jubilation. All right, I'm going to go first because it's going to be real short. This show is great. It's hilarious. And it's hot take. It's funnier than I even thought because I have seen a lot of these episodes, even many of the ones that we have. I, I, I guess I've probably seen all of them, but I remember most of them. And it still made me like, not just like, but like belly laugh. 
And that is very rare for me. And uh, not that I don't think things are funny, but like that sort of genuine laughter. And I want to keep watching and I'm going to just watch it for fun, which is just never happens on this show. <laughs> it is not without flaw. There's a lot of really rough stuff, especially more in the beginning, but even later, it's not a perfect show. And especially like being of its era, you know, you can you can complain about things and, and be offended by things that are in it. And I don't think that I would fault you for that if you were, if you were like, oh, these... I'm Cuban and that street tough is kind of offensive. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> and I don't think that I'm excusing it either by just sort of being like, I still find it very funny because most of the things that are funny are like very character based and line reading based. They're not really based on those things that you would find offensive. I'm sure they're, they're, that I could be wrong about the whole series, but so I don't think I, you need to even feel that guilty for some of those things because it's like, it's one of those time capsule things where you like accept it or you go, I can't watch it because it offends me. And you go like, yeah, I understand that, you know, but I think it exists on its own. And the, the acting, the acting in this, while not like high quality, like drama acting, like the comedic acting in this is just top of the form sitcom, like platonic ideal. And it's, especially Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but but everyone in the cast, really, except for <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld is does a fine job and delivers a lot of funny lines in a fun in funny ways. But he is he is not the draw here. And I think that's great because it's his show. I think that's a very lead character thing, right? Because he's supposed to be the entry into, into into it, like the everyman kind of vibe, even though he's very much not in other ways. But yeah, you're in charge not an idiot. This is this is great. I'll say some things piggybacking off what you said. One of the things I think that is exceptional about Seinfeld, because it's easy to like to put it in context, like this was a time, especially in the 90s, where a lot of stand-up comedians were getting their own sitcoms. And to Jerry Seinfeld's credit, he was very like giving in that he was not afraid that other people would get laughs on the show. When you think of other shows, I think of things like Home Improvement, also a stand-up getting a, a sitcom, where a lot of it is just like, isn't Tim funny? Not that other characters didn't get laughs here and there, but like the show was about Tim Taylor being funny. Right. Let's make the show that. And to Jerry's credit, like I remember one time my Uncle Dave said, you know, he's the least funny guy on this show. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, yeah, he kind of is. I mean, he is funny, but I mean, I think it's helped by the fact that Julia Louis-Dreyfus and especially Jason Alexander are really fantastic actors and sort of bring everyone up. So I do see him as an everyman, but I think it's not as common as you might think. Like, I think there there is an urge to let the comedian be the funny one and everyone else can right. sort of just yeah. gravitate around their orbit. And the show is not afraid to let other people have the spotlight. And it really is an ensemble show, which is unusual for a show that's literally named after one character. Right. You know, and also New York is one of the ensemble. It's like almost a character on the show. <laughs> I will say also piggybacking off another thing you said, I think we, maybe because I curated the list, but we avoided some of the more problematic episodes. Uh, of course, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, which is yeah. the penultimate episode, is probably the most controversial episode. Okay. But also the show's portrayal of Asian Americans, I would say, gets worse as the show goes on. Oh, no. You know, a lot of times people in color, I mean, it's a very white version of New York City. Yeah. And people of color tend to show up when the character calls for a person of color. Like, well, yeah. we have to have an Asian person on this show yeah. or on the, for this specific role because it calls for an Asian person. But there's no like, oh, and we'll just hire a black woman to be, you know, Jerry's girlfriend this episode and she eats her peas one at a time. And I, I know that there's some later episodes with uh, Chinese delivery men that I'm like, 
was this written in the 1940s? Like, what right, is this? Right. And those are late season. Like, even if you compare them to Asian American characters that show up early season, you're like, why did you get so much worse at this? I mean, going back to any 90s sitcom, you're going to have moments like that. But I, I, I just want to cite it since... I'm now going to be effusive in my praise. <laughs> this is a great show. There's a reason sometimes that shows are, you know, considered all-time greats. And this is a show that I think it has some early stumbles, but you can see that the DNA is pretty much there from the start and only gets better, I feel like. I think there may be, we didn't really, the only season nine episode we watched was the finale. But season nine does, I think, get, get a little bit more. lose its teeth a little bit. Yeah. Right, it does start to lose its teeth a little bit, and I think they ended it at the right time. Season 9 is still fucking hysterical. I think with the finale, I mean, it is a sort of weird grace note, but there is part of me that is also charmed by seeing all these characters that you don't typically see together be together. Like, as they're waiting for the verdict, you see Morty and Helen and Frank like praying with the rabbi that lives in Elaine's building. And you see all the, you see Mr. Lippman and Poppy and a few other like restaurant characters being served soup by the soup Nazi at a, at an Airbnb. It's a very charming show and does like see these like one-off characters like come back. It is kind of a nice finale, even though I don't know if there was a universe where they could have nailed that finale in a way. But I mean, to have a disappointing finale is sort of the curse of sitcoms, honestly. Yes, yeah. It's a great show. It's really funny. I think it's also like, it is very 90s in that it's sort of cynical. And I don't know if I would characterize it as dark, but it is it is a little cold, I think, to some people. And I think that's why maybe people who are around our age tended to gravitate to more towards Friends than they did for towards Seinfeld. Seinfeld was, I think, more of a Gen X show. Because I think if you're in your 30s and you're still dating, you're probably pretty cold and cynical. <laughs> maybe. But it's a great show. I mean, what do you fucking need me to tell you about it? We've just been quoting it this whole time. <laughs> and my apologies. I'm sorry. It's great. I mean, you don't need but to apologize. But I think I, I, I would have to give the Catherine, huh? I said, you don't need to apologize to me. I was doing it too. I think I would give the Catherine O'Hara Award, unsurprisingly, to Julia Louis Dreyfus. Oh, yeah. Like, sh- yes. And not just because I curated the list of episodes we watched to be very Elaine heavy. She's, she's so great. She's great. I also, just a sort of a little bit, I was watching YouTube regurgitated a clip of Jimmy Kimmel making people read mean tweets about themselves. And one was Julia Louis-Dreyfus reading a tweet that said, oh yeah, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she's that lady from Seinfeld, that show about eating pickles and shit. Shut the fuck up, bitch. (laughs) And she just laughed and laughed. (laughs) That's really funny. Well, that's what we think. What do you think? Email us, yourinnertrialsnidia at gmail.com. You can... Leave us a voicemail or text us 615-576-0525. Thank you very much to our patrons for supporting us, including Travis Vance. Tommy Boy is my favorite movie. The Zesty. The Supreme Ruler of this podcast. The Hands of Fate. The Elusive Fan Gromkin. T. Smith. Baseline. Shit on the cartouche. Scalphosaurus. Ryan McWilly. Why McWilly? Particle Man, Brian McWilly. Yeah, uh, Lindsay Nell. Lindsay Halleck. Larissa Maestro. Karen Curd. Just Cuz. Josh Frigo. Jonathan Day. I'm trying to stop you from basing. Uh, Jeremy Palin. James Taylor. Jackson has an unhealthy obsession with Damon. Sure does. His Honor the Mayor. <laughs> Heather Tuggle. Dramatically placed hot dog. Mm, yes, Dr. Malcolm's um, mm, heaving bosom. David Mort. Dan McIntyre. D. 
demon's Australian accent. Carolyn Amberson. Caroline. Oh, wait, what did I say? Carolyn. Oh, sorry, Caroline. Caroline Amberson. Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Beth Sermont. Thank you all very, very much. We appreciate your support so much. If you want to support like them, patreon.com slash your inner child is nitty. Can hear more if you can believe that. We talk more. <laughs> DJ, I've got a question for you. You ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got the rooster, the chicken, and the hen. Now the rooster gets with the chicken. They're all chickens. <laughs> He's so mad. Why is he so mad? They're all chickens. The rooster has sex with all of them. That's perverse. (laughs) 